I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've only got two new releases to talk about. The final chapter in the Maze Runner trilogy, Death Cure, and the belated awards bait movie, Hostiles. So, let's get started. Thomas, you can save your friends. Or you can save us all. Please tell me. The young adult genre can be a weird mixed bag of quality. Because, I mean, this is the genre that gave us things like Harry Potter, which ended up being decent. Um, although that's kind of, we're kind of in a, since the series has ended, we're kind of in a post-modern, we're looking into different um, interpretations of the of the stories than, uh, the, and than what we initially accepted them as. Which is interesting, kind of like deconstructing the series as a whole. But, uh, you know, this has also gave us The Hunger Games, which is a solid uh, group of films for the most part. I know the first two were were pretty good. The second two were kind of okay. But a lot of times, young adult... Because the problem with being based on young adult fiction, based on fiction written for teenagers, is... You have to, it, it's, number one, the storytelling is not all that complex. It has, it's treated as very entry-level sort of uh, fiction, something that anybody can pick up. And the problem with that is you don't, uh, you know, in the hands of a bad writer, you get things like uh, uh, Twilight, which is more, which for the most part is harmless, Sort of. There are bad aspects to it. There are problematic aspects to it. But for the most part, is ultimately kind of junk food for uh, literature. Junk food literature. And that seems to be the case with a lot of young adult stuff. Although I hear things like Rick Riordan's books are solid. And, you know, just because something is written for young adults doesn't mean it's bad. It's the, pro- the problem is that so much of it is simplified that the more adult audience can't is bored by it for the most part because they've seen these things done and it's not all that new or interesting. And even for young adults, like at some after a certain point, you're you're gonna want more challenging things. And so I can't speak to the quality of the books for the Maze Runner, but I revisited the movies and there was something there. Like the first movie, uh did a lot, had a sort of Lord of the Flies start to it, mixed in with this idea of being trapped in a maze, and you know, like a labyrinth, sort of like being in a, like being in a, what is it? What's the Greek myth? Um, Minos, the labyrinth of Minos, where the Minotaur is, uh, which is where the Minotaur gets its name. It's the it's the bull from Minos, Minotaur. <laughs> um, but. Is Tor Greek for bull? I don't know. Uh, But I know that's where that came up. Um, The thing is, it ultimately ended kind of stupidly. Because it goes into this whole post-apocalyptic bullcrap when it didn't really need to. Like, you could have done any number of interesting things with the idea of these kids in a maze. Like, it could be, I don't know, aliens. That's a big thing. Like, they're being tested on by aliens. Or it could be, like, some sort of IQ test. Or something, but the way they go about it, the way it's ultimately revealed, is kind of ludicrous. 
And by the time we get into the second book, The Scorch Trials, which apparently the movie differs vastly from the source material, so I can't speak to how the books were, if the books were any better, but the movies went complete ripoff, ripping off any number of things from Mad Max to The Hunger Games to even just copying along with Divergent. Like, the first, Scorch Trials had a lot of Divergent vibes, sadly, and it felt like just another generic young adult post-apocalyptic movie. And, like, everything was riding on the coattails of The Hunger Games, which the first movie kind of did, but it, there was always that promise, up until the very end, there was that promise of something more interesting, something cool and unique that The Hunger Games didn't have, you know? Whereas The Hunger Games was about competition uh, as opiate for the masses, The Maze Runner started out almost like a survival story, you know, like something... Uh, on the lines of a hatchet, or, you know, once again, Lord of the Flies. And then all of a sudden we get into the post-apocalyptic genre, and it's just not all that interesting. And by the time we get to the last movie, it's it, it goes balls to the wall, but it doesn't really do anything unique or interesting again. Although the last, uh, scene, the last sequence of the movie before the denouement, the climax, is basically an entire city being destroyed in, in hellfire as, as the people rise up and use RPGs and rocket launchers and all kinds of stuff to destroy the last metropolis in this post-apocalyptic world. And it's like, I heard, I forget who, I think it was um, the guys over at Double, Double Toasted who pointed this out. Either them or Brad uh, over at Cinema Snob. Uh, this movie makes the destruction in Man of Steel look like some kid kidding a sandcastle kick by comparison. Like, the devastation in Man of Steel was offensive. Here it's just, like, almost, like, cartoonishly offensive. Like, why are you doing this? Where is this coming from? Why are we all of a sudden going into destruction porn in this movie? Where's this coming from? Um, but yeah, like, once again, we got the Mad Max stuff I commented on in the trailer. We've got the same stuff from Hunger Games and Divergent. The, all the whole generic, they got the generic love interest storyline that doesn't do anything new or interesting. And then all of a sudden goes into, like, freaking, uh... Mission Impossible toward, towards the end, leading up to the climax, and then it's, it's, it just, go, just like everything dies in a, in a, and just burning and explosions before they all escape, before the, the survivors escape. And I did not, like, I did not, like, this is not a good movie. It is mediocre at best and just insane at worst. And so, I can't, like, I can't really say to... I can't really recommend this franchise because whatever interesting stuff was there in the first movie is just is just completely thrown out the window for generic in the second and insane by the end of the third. And, yeah, once again, like, I've come... If you watched... If you followed my uh, munch-along I did for Maze Runner, I wasn't able to do a munch-along for the Scorch Trials, but for Maze Runner, Thomas is not a good character. He is, number one, imp too impulsive. He is an idiot. 
and he is called out. He's called out for being an idiot time and time and time again, and everybody still goes along with him because he's the protagonist. Like, there is no reason anybody would follow him except that he's the main character. And I almost want to deconstruction run want to write a deconstruction of that, where people start to realize, why are we following this guy? He's an idiot, and then they start to think about, wait a second. And then they start to realize they're, they, that he's the protagonist. And then it becomes about trying to kill the protagonist. And then the protagonist becomes the villain. Because he just realizes, I am the hero. I am the good guy. And then he becomes crazy. And that can be made for an interesting story. Because seriously, just because you're the protagonist in the story shouldn't mean that you are, you know, shouldn't mean that you don't change the entire time there is at no point where thomas goes through any real growth or change or anything he is generic somewhat sometimes stoic mostly idiotic lead character hunk like that's the whole point is that dylan o'brien is a cutie so that's all that matters is that he's pretty everybody follow him um and that doesn't change by this movie. In fact, by here, it, 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 they still call him out for being an idiot. And yet everybody follows along because... And then by the end of the movie, it's like, but he's also Jesus. He's also the savior character. And it's like, why? Why are we rewarding this asshole for nothing? Why is he continually rewarded for being an idiot and incompetent and never growing or becoming a better character. So, yeah. Uh, I will say I, it was glad, I was glad to see Will Poulter come back. Uh, for those who don't know, Will Poulter got some buzz earlier that last year, midway through last year, for being the bad cop in Detroit, like being the main villainous sort of white, uh, white supremacist cop, racist piece of crap cop in Detroit. But um, he was the young kid from, uh, he was the son, fake son from We're the Millers. And I call, I refer to him as Pyle because I didn't recognize him at first. But Will Poulter is one of those guys where I hope he becomes a better version of Miles Teller. Because, like, Miles Teller was one of those guys where, like, hey, here's this guy. He's great in this movie, Whiplash, so let's put him in all this stuff. And he wasn't good in anything else, really. And even in Whiplash, I didn't like him. Like, J.K. Simmons is the only reason to see Whiplash, because Miles Teller is just kind of a douchebag. Of course, those, those, that writer-director is known for basically writing uh, self-righteous, jazz-enthusiast white douchebags. Because that's the same thing with La La Land as well. Um... But I really hope Will Poulter kind of breaks free from, like, he was, what was the other thing he was just in? Let me pull him up. But, because he was, been, he's been in a bunch of other stuff, too. Like, he got a lot, you know, he really got some buzz going, because people were like, oh, my God, I can't steer this guy, when you see him be this racist piece of crap in Detroit. But even in, um, oh, he was a Eustace Scrub, who I think was the cousin character from uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But, uh... Son of Rambo was where he got his start. Uh, he was, I think, the bully character who became who befriended the main character in that. I still haven't seen that. Uh, but he was also in uh, The Revenant as... Um, who's his character? Uh, Jim Bridger, who was... I th who was Jim Bridger? Um, I think he was just one of the guys who was on, along the... Uh, here we go. When the only volunteers are Hawk and the young Jim Bridger. Okay, that's the one who... He's the one who uh, 
what who was who who volunteered to um watch over Hugh Glass before um before uh Tom Hardy's character tried to kill him. And uh so yeah, so you recognize him. He uh, like I said he kind of looks like Vincent D'Onofrio as uh, Private Pyle in Full Metal Jacket a bit. He kind of has that look. Like I've seen there are a bunch you, honestly Will Poulter looks like some of the kids I went that were in Boy Scouts when I was growing up in uh, Northeast Ohio and kind of the rural area. There's a bunch of kids who looked like him. But I don't mean to knock him. Uh, it's just that, because uh, that's the thing. I knock it, I, you know, it because it, that's the thing. He looks like the bully, like the kind of like, oh, he also kind of looks like, um, Far Farkas from A Christmas Story. He kind of has that look about him. But at the same time, the kid's a kid's a good actor. He's funny in Where the Millers, probably the best part of the damn movie. He's sol He's my favorite part of the Maze Runner, and he returns in Death Cure, and he's proven himself to be even even capable of being a really despicable villain. And um, he's in something coming up later this year called The Little Stranger. Uh. Son of the son of a houseman is built quite a life, respectably, as a country doctor during the long hot summer of '47, uh, where his mother once worked. House is among the Ayers family for more than two centuries, and is now in decline. Are haunted by something more than ominous. What is this? It's based on a book, but what kind of genre are we talking about? Supernatural horror thriller. Dom Old Gleason, Ruth Wilson, Will Poulter, and Charlotte Rampling. Small cast. Uh, who's Ruth, Ruth Wilson? Uh, Anna Karenina, Lone Ranger, Saving Mr. Banks. Okay. And, um, oh, she got, she was even, she even got an Olivia uh, nomination uh, for playing Stella Kowalski in The Streetcar Named Desire, I guess, you know, on the West End or something, because I think that's a British award. Anyway, uh, that's something, I'm, so yeah, I mean, if he's going to be like the sort of, uh, bratty son, adult son of this rich family, I, I could see him playing that. He's, He's proving himself to be a real. He was in that. Uh, he's also one of the soldiers in that Netflix movie with uh, Bradley, with Brad Pitt, Bradley, Brad Pitt, War Machine. I still need to once again. I still need to see that. So this kid has a solid resume going for him, and I I have high hopes for him because God knows I don't have I don't think anything of Dylan O'Brien between the Maze Runner series and American Assassin. He has just proven to be just another generic handsome white dude. You know he is this. Current, he is the current iteration of guys like Sam Worthington or um, uh, Taylor Kitsch or even or like remember when um, Jon Snow tried to be a movie star instead of just being on Game of Thrones in like in that stupid um, Pompeii movie. Yeah, that's where I that's the kind of stuff I see of Dylan O'Brien unless he can do some in, indie stuff to be more interesting because Will Poulter. I could easily see becoming a, a good character actor. You know, as one of those kind of go-to character actors as either the tough guy or the bully sort of character. Because he's he's a solid... He's proven himself to be... Even as... Like, once again, in Maze Runner, he's, his character Galley is my latched-on character. Like, Albie is a good leader, but Galley, even though he's played off as the antagonist, 
He's just kind of like, he's just a kind of a dude, you know? He's like, he has, he's the smart one. He's the one who knows what's up. The only thing he doesn't do, the only reason we, he's not the protagonist is because he doesn't, you know, he's not proactive. But just because Thomas is proactive doesn't mean he's a good leader because he gets everybody around him killed. So yeah, that's, just kind of diverged off of talking about the series because honestly, what's there to talk about? Go watch The Hunger Games or Mad Max, something that's interesting. Don't watch The Maze Runner. If you're going to watch any of them, watch the first one. That's actually interesting. This one, it's stupid, and the one before it is boring. There you go. Although Walton Goggins has, like, this mutant deformed character that's trying, that's basically, like, hanging on by a thread as a survivor of the disease they introduced. He's kind of cool, but they don't do anything with him, so who cares? Yeah, Maze Runner. Who cares? The series. No, I've killed everything that's walked or crawled. If you do it enough, you get used to it. That's what I'm afraid of. You just gotta take your dues. We both know it could just as easily be you sitting here in these chains. Sometimes I envy the finality of death. The certainty. Drive those thoughts away when I'm weak. Understand this. When we lay our heads down out here. So every award season, I call I try I'm trying to break free from the Oscar from the Oscars dominating Every, all the discourse, because I know Oscars are still the longest running and the most um, most important, quote-unquote, of these awards, but there are other awards. That's why I've been devoting most of January to talking about them. And as far as awards season go, movies go, sometimes good movies slip through the cracks in favor of mo movies with more clout behind them. And this is where Hostiles comes in. I don't, I can't think of anything from previous award seasons that really slipped through the cracks. I mean, I can look it through my favorites of the last couple of years. So, like, if I look through 2017, where are we at? There's the list. Um, nah, nah, none of, my, none of the other award season stuff really made it onto my list. And, um... If I look through 2016's lists, where are we at? There we go. Uh, Miles Ahead got ignored. Uh, Snowden got ignored. Hell or High Water, I feel, really got it. I, I don't know. I don't know how much that got ignored. Um, Moonlight, which didn't slip through the cracks. It's, it, it, won, it won Best Picture. But... Um, Anthropoid was another one that got ignored. And if I look through 2015, where's... I got best of. Uh, Black Mask kind of got ignored. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Martian got put in the wrong category at the Golden Globes. Um... So yeah, I mean, 
I I tend not to pay too much attention because, and I'll get into the reason why. Because it turns out there is in fact a reason for the Oscar for the award season schedule and why why it is the way it is. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the award season stuff either is really great, like this year's Shape of Water or um, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing. I think it's great, but I know that uh, people aren't exactly big fans of it. But I, I, you know, I still recognize it as a, as, as something interesting, unique, and not unique because I mean I'm sure there's plenty of movies I haven't seen that touch on the subject. But I, I, it's something I enjoyed, and I and I found a lot of good stuff in. Uh, what else has been big this year? I haven't. I still haven't. I've, I don't think I'll, I'll. I don't think I'll ever see Itania. Honestly, it's too late for that. <laughs> Because it never came, it never came out near enough. It never came out soon enough for me to really care, and I'm not gonna go out of my way to see it at this point if it's not readily available. Like the other stuff I have to watch is, um, Lady Bird was fine. Uh, I'm glad it's getting recognition. Same with Get Out. Uh, Get Out, although I think Get Out is better. I think Lady Bird is pretty lackluster, honestly. But I, it, it feels like that sort of mumblecore stuff plays more to the. California crowd, the people who are voting for these sorts of things. Um, I'm trying to think what else there is. Uh, yeah, I mean, the po- I mean, I've been hearing people say like the post is 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 like pure uh, Oscar bait garbage, but not garbage, but like pure Oscar bait lackluster f- movie. And I couldn't disagree more. Post was probably would have probably ended up in my top seven somewhere. If not an honorable mention. Same with this one. Hostiles is a fictional uh, sort of postmodern western. Think of things like Unforgiven. This is in that same vein. And it it's um it while it does wants to be more progressive with its viewpoints and its 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 treatment of indigenous characters, it still falls into a lot of the same traps, which is its biggest flaw. Uh, at the same time, it's a phenomenal movie, and I I would probably watch it again at some point if I had the time. If I was in the right, I'd have to be in the right mood and the right headspace because, woof, this movie could have been written by Cormac McCarthy. It's so bleak. Like the movie opens with you know murder, straight up murder, and and uh, poor Rosamund Pike having to run for her life. It this movie is bleak for the most part, and even by the end, it's just like. You, you're, you're almost you almost at that point where they're like, oh god, it's over. You 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 survived an ordeal alongside these characters, you know. And I will say it is very kind of revisionist to a point because I I'm curious. I haven't seen anything to say one way or the other, but I'm very curious as to just how progressive the people of 1892 were towards the indigenous people, because like the idea of a bigoted uh, soldier having to escort a former war criminal to his re- to his to his old homeland, so he can see it before he dies. That feels very a very modern story. I feel like at the time it would not have gotten play in 1892. Be like, oh, he's dying. He wants to get his re- he wants to get his resting place in the land of his people. Whoops, too bad. You know, I feel like. I feel like that sort of stuff is plays to the modern sensibility more than it is a historical, a historically accurate sort of sentiment. 
And even there's a certain point where uh, one of one where um, a, uh, a soldier's wife, uh, a high-ranking official's wife, I think a colonel, a colonel's wife, is talking about is taking up the cause of the indigenous people and comments on how horribly they've been treated. And it feels more like a modern. It feels like a very modern sort of uh, viewpoint. And that's probably the other sort of uh, flaw with this movie is that it's written from a modern perspective, sadly. And it's not so if you so it's not very I feel like in certain areas like that, it's not very historic. It's like when um the Lost City of Z tried to paint the guy as some sort of proponent of the of indigenous peoples. That is that couldn't be any further from the truth. The dude commented that, oh, they got their own culture, but, you know, whites are still better. You know, hey, our, we're still the superior race, am I right? <laughs> that's, you know, that's how the guy was in real life. They tried to paint him as the most progressive sort of viewpoint on indigenous peoples, and it felt very out of place. So, here, so yeah, those are the bit, the, I think, the flaws of this movie are, you know, are kind of, they don't detract from it for me, but they are, they do, they are examples of a problem, of problems with, you know, trying to tell these kinds of stories. And I feel like Wind River got off better because it's set in the present day, whereas this movie is trying to present modern day ideologies and viewpoints in 1892, you know, um, and of course, you know, there is a problem, you know, like the kid, uh, native actor isn't exact, is, suffers from a lot of stuff as a lot of kid actors do, where he doesn't have a lot of experience, so he's just kind of like staring blankly into the camera, and he, he speaks very woodenly as composed, I, I mean, his, his grandfather and the, the chief that, that's being escorted is Wes Studi, who's been a long time, uh, native actor, and I think he was even in, uh, was he in... He wasn't in Wind River as well, was he? Let's see. He may have been. Let's let's check him out. Uh, oh, he apparently was on Petty Dreadfell. So, 2017. No, uh, okay, no, he wasn't in. But he's been in stuff... He's been in stuff going as far back as... Um, 1988. I mean, he was in... Uh, he was like an extra in Dances with Wolves. And he was the Indian in the desert in the doors. So, uh, played Geronimo, uh, was in a Crazy Horse movie. You know, he's been, he's, and, uh, been in Skinwalkers. Oh, God, he was in that? Uh, he was also in The Lone Ranger. So, um, wait, The Lone Ranger 2003. That was, okay, that, was a te- that wasn't the same one. So, but he's been... So he's been playing uh, native characters for a while. Oh, he was even an avatar. Huh. So. So he's, so, I mean, he's very well renowned in terms of playing, in terms of indigenous actors. And um, he is amazing. Even He's amazing, if not a little stereotypical, but the stereotypes stem from the writing more so than West Studi. West Duty can only act with what's given to him. And he is, he is, he does a great performance, even though the writing is a bit, you know, it feels very much like the wise old native character. And it, it plays to that at certain points. And I feel like if we got, had more time, 
with these characters they and develop them more we we could have they could be more interesting and it's my that's my same problem with wind river is that the native characters the indigenous characters are more so there for the plot's sake than they are there as three-dimensional unique characters and we're and i really hope we reach the point where we can get past that sort of con that sort of notion as a, as filmmakers and we start releasing and writing movies and maybe even promoting the writings and directing of indigenous people to tell their own stories you know i i would much rather see stuff like that than to see another white man uh trying to learn from the indigenous people again but at the same time this is more just like life is life is just bleak and miserable to me because i mean if christian bale suffers through all you know christian bale and rosamund pike have to deal with loss after loss after loss in this entire trip that feels like it was doomed from the start and 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 so not only are they having to deal with uh, aggressive comanche people uh, a group a, a aggressive group of comanche they also have to deal with just racist racist and horrible sort of like fur traders and wild men and ranchers just all along the way everything is just it's just going to hell on a handbasket and it feels like the whole thing was just just had a bad omen from the just from the idea of the idea of like hey take this war criminal back to his native back to his home yeah what could possibly go wrong just traveling thousands of miles through the wilds Nothing could possibly go wrong. That be, so yeah, it's 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 it's, it's I I, de, I derived the the flaws of this movie, but yeah, I really liked it. I genuinely liked this movie, and I once again put it alongside Wind River as a as a good movie featuring indigenous people and telling trying to tell an indigenous story. Even though I feel Wind River is slightly better thought out. But I feel like this was better produced, you know. It had more, it had more going for it. Whereas Wind River is kind of by the number, by the numbers storytelling, so to speak. You know, it's very procedural. Here, this is very much like trying to read through Cormac McCarthy, um, and Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike. I feel were very, very much snubbed by the award season this year. Like, in all honesty, I feel like. Why are, why are we nominating Judy Dench for basically playing the same old British woman she's always played in Victoria and Abdul for Rosamund Pike, who actually, like, get, I still need, I, I never saw Victoria and Abdul because, number one, it didn't play anywhere near me, and number two, it never seemed all that interesting. Like, oh, here's the story of how the Queen of England learned how to not be a piece, racist piece of crap from an Indian man. Good, just fantastic. We need more of those stories of how white people need to learn how to be better. Uh, which I'm not saying that we don't, but at the same time, like how many times do we have to be, do we have to have white, see stories of white people learning the error of their ways by people of color, you know? Like who cares? Tell stories about the people of color instead. Cause that's more interesting. We haven't seen those stories, damn it. Um, yeah, it's really it really is just and it's it's more I, once again my problems stem more from the system and from film and from the filmmaking tropes rather than the movie itself. 
and 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 so it, it but I, I will say the way this movie goes it's 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 intense and it is not for the faint of heart because I mean death and de- death is just hangs around this movie you know like basically you could just easily you know put in the grim reapers riding one of the horses riding like a skeleton horse as he hangs out with these people as they travel from uh new mexico to montana and he's just like hey sup i'm just gonna hang around you guys feel you know you got you know (laughs) that's the kind of omen hanging over these people as they make this church as they make this journey but at the same time it's it's amazingly well acted christian bale gives a good gives, gives a great performance Something I something I haven't seen you know I haven't seen a great performance like this from him in a long while, probably since Batman, um, to, you know since his since his run as Batman, and Rosamund Pike is probably one of the best performances of her career, and even like the minor characters like uh, Rory Cochran is um, the master sergeant uh, under. Christian Bale, and he is dealing with depression. Like, he even says out at the beginning of the movie, they, they say he suffers from melancholia, which I'm guessing is like an archaic term for depression. And yeah, he suffers from depression throughout the whole movie, even getting to a certain point where he suffers from a lot of white guilt towards um, the native, to the natives. And, you know, then at the same time, you've got um, the one black guy, uh, played by Jesse Plemons, <laughs> who, uh, it's just kind of you know, is, is almost, but uh, who thankfully does is not the first to die. Uh, oh, heck, heck, uh, even uh, Oscar fellow Oscar nominee Timothy, so Timothy Chalamet gets nominated for Call Me by Your Name, and here's this movie that's also featuring him, award winner, you know, Oscar winner Christian Bale, nominee Rosamund Pike, you know, heralded indigenous actor West Study by the guy who did Crazy Heart and directed Black Mass. And nobody, nobody cares. Like nobody's given this movie any attention, and it feels like it slipped through the cracks. And it makes me wonder, why are people caring more about these other stuff? This other stuff that feels more like navel gazing and back padding, when there's just genuinely well made and interesting movie that could easily be played along as a companion, as a, a companion piece to things like The Revenant or unforgiven and it's just like eh, what horses nobody cares about westerns anymore i don't know i, I don't i generally don't understand why people, like who cares like that gary oldman get put on a silly accent and and makeup to play a, a, an even worse person uh in the form in, in um in the case of uh Winston Churchill, who you could arguably argue is 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 just as awful a person as the people portrayed in this movie, and yet all these people who give great performances, probably better than Oldman's, don't get any recognition. Like swap Oldman with Christian Bale, swap Judy Dench with Rosamund Pike, give this movie some recognition, dudes. Like even costuming, product, like some kind of production, like uh, sound design, composition. Why, why are we? Why none of the? Why are we not? You know, giving this movie some credit. I mean, heck, the actors have to learn, have to speak Cheyenne phonetically in order to play this movie because the characters speak in Cheyenne and and its official languages are listed English, Cheyenne. So I mean, these, these people put a lot of effort into this movie. Why is nobody giving it? Like, why are we paying attention to freaking P.T. Barnum and? And um, 
and uh, Winston Churchill, who in the in these lionized, overly sensitive, overly uh, uh, revisionist versions of them, when there's this more interesting fictional story being told, like original screenplay, something. Give this movie some credit, guys. Jeez. Uh, thankfully, I will say, the, th the showing I saw it in today was almost sold out. It was very close to being sold out. I would say like at least 80% of the seats were sold in that theater. So I really hope people are taking the time out to go see this because it is, it is worth the... If, if you are okay with bleak westerns that do kind of have a little taste of revisionist history with them but are ultimately still good movies. Check out check out Hostiles. It genuinely is a good movie even though it's a lot that's a rough ride to get through, you know? Uh, but speaking of award season, there aren't any awards this weekend, so we're going to be talking about the the origin of the term Oscar bait, which I have since adapted into awards bait. So, more after this. Did you know Ash's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. film at all, you'll know of the term Oscar bait. And it's definitely uh, given to a lot of dra very dramatic movies, usually dealing with heavy subject matter or sometimes even controversial subject matter, but that usually come out towards the end of the year, during the award season, which used to be just, which I used to just call the Oscar season, because that's how preeminent the, the awards are to um, filmmaking. And in fact, it, it, it's that's why the origin of this that's where the origin of this term comes from is from the Oscars. Uh, there's even a Wikipedia page which I am reading from for this, uh, and the film community for movies that appear to have been produced for the sole purpose of earning nominations for Academy Awards or Oscars. And that's why I've um, expanded the term because not only are there the Oscars, there's the Golden Globes, Critics' Choice. Uh, SAG Awards, uh, PGA Awards, you know, there's uh, the, the BAFTAs, there's all kinds of film awards since the Oscars. The Oscars were just the first ones. And uh, once again, that's usually for uh, lavishly produced epic length period dramas often set against tragical, tragic historic events such as the Holocaust are frequently seen this way and often contend for the technical Oscars such as Cinematography, makeup, and hairstyling, costume design, or production design. 
Alternatively, is set in the present. This is all from the wiki. The plot may center on a character with a physical or mental disability. The cast may well include actors with previous awards or nominations, a trait that a trait that may be also be shared by the director or the writer. So, I mean, this is what we're talking about with Oscar bait or awards bait. The idea of pandering. It is very much pandering to the old farts who uh, vote on these things. And that's why so many of them have been about the Holocaust, because that was such a predominant uh, point in, 20th, in the 20th century that the old people who uh, still voted the Oscars, that's something a lot of them lived through for the most part. And that's why they got such recognition for so long. That's why, I mean, think about it. Um, even if you remember the, the uh, Ricky Gervais uh, series extras he did, where he played, where he led, where he starred as one of the uh, many extras on fictional films, um, there was the one where Kate Winslet gets started and they were making some movie about nuns and she's just sitting there smoking like, you know, if you want, I could have won an Oscar. I just needed to be in a movie about the Holocaust. And then she points out the hypocrisy of the nomination process for the Oscars, which she eventually won in a movie where, where, where it's about the Holocaust and she used to be a former Nazi. If not a Nazi, then like a Nazi collaborator. Uh, yeah, remember the reader? That's what got... Kate Winslet, her Oscar. None of her other performances, not Revolutionary World, not the, not Titanic, not anything else. The reader, the one about the Holocaust, is the one that got her the Oscar. See what we're talking about? Uh, like even another, what other, see, and uh, this isn't the only one, like uh, Tropic Thunder poked fun at this with his uh, simple Jack uh, thing as being, as going full retard. Um, <laughs> uh, Yep, here it is. Uh, extras Kate Winslet plays a caricature of herself desperate for an Oscar. During the episode, Winslet tells the character, uh, Gervais's character, that she took the role in the unnamed Holocaust film, claiming that films such as Schindler's List and, P and The Pianist have Oscars coming out of the <laughs> Oscars coming out of the os. Uh, Late in the episode, also muses that playing a mental also guarantees an Oscar win. And uh, her role as an, an illiterate former Nazi in The Reader is what got her the Oscar. Uh, during the, during last year's Academy Awards telecast, even Seth Meyers made a, a Oscar bait, a film that is shamelessly timed for awards season. Uh, so, I mean, like, this has been an ongoing thing. And I'm, I'm look, using this wiki more as a, uh, more as a jumping off point for where it came from to lead into the discussion of what's wrong with it, what I think is wrong with it, how we can change it, and the problem of naming films as this, and it, you know, as, you know, in, with, with cases like Hostiles or The Post, specifically. Because, I mean, like, Phantom Thread could easily be also, also be called Oscar bait, but everybody loves that one. Something I wasn't able to see in 2017, because I'll, we'll get into it. Uh, getting into the history... Uh, there, the reason this came up is because, uh, they were instant, MGM was part of the, MGM, oddly enough, back in the 30s was part of the reason that this became a thing. Because the Oscars started in 1928. Oh my god, is this the, is this the 90th anniversary of the Oscars? Wait a minute, what, what, um, 1928, it was 1927. 
1929 was the first uh, was the first Academy Awards. So it's next year is going to be the big one. So then this is the 89th Oscars? Hold on. Okay, yeah. Wait a minute. So this is the 90th Oscars. This is the 90th Academy Awards. Oh my God. If I keep doing this for 10 more years, I'll be able to cover the 100th Academy Awards. Holy cow. Anyway, um, back to uh, Oscar baiting. Um, so yeah, in 1929 is when the first awards were. So 1920, so 1928 is the movies they covered. And in, so I'm wondering where they came up with 90. How is, how is this year the 90th Academy Awards when it, it started, when the first Academy Awards were in, or were they, they, it said they were awarded in uh, 1929. Hold on. History. First Academy Awards presentation was held on May 16th, 1929 at a private dinner function in Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. So wouldn't next year be the, next year would be the 90th. Academy Awards. Was there a year where there were two Oscar presentations? Here, hold on. Now, now, now I'm confused. List of Academy Awards ceremonies. Okay. Come on. Okay. 29. There's the problem. There's the problem. There was a, there was a second Oscars. In 1930, I am learning so much from this. There was a, there was the first Oscars was a 15 minute ceremony in 1929 for the movies in 1927 and 1928. Then in 1930, there was one in April and there was a second Oscar ceremony in November of 1930. So there were two Oscars in the same year. How crazy is that? So that's why this is the 90th instead of it being the, instead of next year being the 90th because there were technically two Oscars in 1930. My God. Fun facts about film history. Anyway, so 1929 is when the first Oscars were. Started to gain steam during the 30s. So in 1933, MGM released Queen Christina in, in New York and Los Angeles only the week after Christmas and didn't expand into wider release until 1934. 1939, they did the exact same thing with Gone to the Wind, opening limitedly in New York and Los Angeles in order to qualify for the Academy Awards and then went on to open wide. The first use of Oscar bait, however, uh was uh, for The New Republic, which is, what is The New Republic? I'm not familiar with that paper. Oh, they're still going. It's an editorial magazine, first issued in 1914. Anyway, um, The New Republic magazine wrote a review of um, John Ford's Fort Apache. And the, and the review ends with a sentence, postcards are supposed to be sent through the mail. Flashed self-consciously on the screen, they look like Oscar bait. 
and they link to the source. And I'm going to see if I can't re see what they're talking about myself from inside the book. Come on. Show me. Show me the image. Show me the image. Why can't I look at it? Let me look at it. Why can't I look at it? Google, show me, show me the picture. Google, Google, you suck. Try it again. There's a second uh, citation. Okay, uh, where are we talking about? New Republic was decidedly unimpressed, stating that the movies used to do Custer's Last Stand remarkably well. On the evidence of Fort Apache, they've lost the knack as a dull massacre as ever you've seen. Aliens are presented not as heathen devils, but as a minority group with a grievance. Wait, so they were pissed that Fort Apache didn't treat, in, weren't, wasn't offensive, offensive towards the natives? <laughs> um, that at least is a point worth noting. Oh, were they pleased? But this, this citation is, they, they, they're cutting all kinds of stuff out. That's why I wish the Google would let me look at the actual review. Postcards are supposed to be sent through the mail. Flashed self-consciously on the screen, they look like Oscar bait. So, I'm trying to comprehend what the hell that even means. What does it mean? Whatever. Whatever that means, I'm guessing it's just like, oh, the images that they're being shown in the movie are just, you know, meant to engage the Oscar voting public and not the actual film going public or something. I don't know. Uh, New York Times picked that up, picked up the term in 1955 when they talked about um, Humphrey Bogart's last film, The Harder They Fall. And where, how do they use it in that? Are you going to actually show me that review? Can I actually see what that review in question? Oh, no. I have to subscribe to the New York Times in order to see the full review at least i can give them that over the freaking new republic who apparently forgot to archive their stuff um <laughs> a 1968 ad for the lion in winter which i remember i think it won that year but i think it's in what is it an adaptation of historical drama based on the play by james goldman starring peter o'toole and katherine hepburn and it's about uh, oh, it even has Anthony, young Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton in his film debut, oddly enough. Uh, what is it about? Um, King Henry II. Okay, yeah, so an ad for that movie quoted a review from Cosmopolitan praising the performances of Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn as Oscar bait outings. So, I mean, this got, as, as the halfway through the century, halfway through the 1900s, uh, the, the term starts to pick up more and more use in, in the film circles. And then, um, uh, while they might attract the attack, attention of the Academy voters, were not explicitly made with them in mind. In 1948, the Supreme Court of the United States and, U U and USV Paramount Pictures Forbidding the studios from owning theater chains changed the film industry. Oh, that's something interesting. I may have to do, um, as things go on, I may have to start doing like this today in film history. That might be an interesting thing for if I have nothing else to talk about. Or it may be an interesting topic to just throw in regularly. Uh, I love digging stuff up like this. 
Uh, but their pictures are no longer guaranteed to have an adequate theatrical run at television beginning to offer competition. Studios had to rely increasingly on marketing to make films profitable. Thus, the release patterns began following the calendar even more closely. So that decision in 1948 is why the release schedule is what it is. Led, it led to that. And the first film to de deliberately seek Oscar nominations as a marketing strategy was actually 1978's The Deer Hunter. After a disastrous test screening of the, of the film in Detroit, Universal turned to another producer with both Broadway and Hollywood experience for advice on how to successfully market a depressing film. He realized with such a grim subject and brutal depictions of war and torture, the only way viewers would seek the film out is if it had been nominated for an Oscar. And so with that in mind, they started to play, they arranged for a two-week run at a single theater in New York and Los Angeles before the year was out in order to, in order to meet the minimum requirements for Oscar eligibility. The audiences were limited to critics and Academy members. After that, Universal pulled the film from distribution, save for some showings on a boutique cable network that catered to film enthusiasts called the Z Channel. <laughs> so it showed, uh, it showed the film on 1978-grade cable before it continued on a theatrical run until it could guarantee an Oscar win. And then after the nominations were announced and it received nine nominees nominations and it immediately went into wide release uh the practice is the equivalent of a triumphant slam dunk in the final seconds and it often wins the game uh critic tyber uh wrote in new york times magazine and now everybody does but it wasn't heard of in 1978 now everybody does it uh so the reason the push at the end of the year started number one from mgm and then after the success of The Deer Hunter, it's become mainstay in Hollywood. In, in Hollywood. Uh, 80s saw a change from director-driven films like The Deer Hunter to summer blockbusters. Uh, independent filmmakers refined Carr's methods of exploiting the Oscars. Uh, Merchant Ivory's lavish costume dramas, often based on novels by Henry James or E.M. Forster, were widely emulated and set the standard for one type of Oscar bait production. Their 1985 adaptation of Forster's A Room with a View won three of the eight Oscars it was nominated for. And by 1991, the modern film release calendar uh, in autumn and December, in which they released movies with the, with the highest Oscar hopes in autumn and December, was set. Harvey, oh, Harvey Weinstein sought prestige for his productions through Oscars. <laughs> Oof. It culminated in the 1998 Best Picture win for Shakespeare in Love. Similar strategies to The Deer Hunter brought YC's company another best picture in 2010 for The King's Speech. Who, uh, for Colin, starring Colin Firth, who got to start in Merchant Ivory's 1980s films. And use of the term Oscar bait in the media began to increase in the mid-90s to a 2004 peak, after which it remained stable. So, that's kind of the history of Oscar bait. And once again, Oscar bait genuinely, generally means... Big budget, costume dramas, period pieces, normally about something tragic in history, especially things like the Holocaust. And if it's more, if your movie is more character driven, they usually play towards mental handicaps or disabilities and, or something more physical. That's why you get things like Mask or Wonder, you know, where the, the film has to do, uh, 
it, it has to do um it has to deal with more um hard, with more hard, like more openly visual hardships for people. That's why things like um, Miracle Worker works so well because you have a blind woman teaching a deaf and blind woman how to speak. You know, that's very much kind of in the vein of the Oscars. But, um, yeah, and what, as you heard, Harvey Weinstein was big on exploiting that same mentality, that same sort of, um, that same sort of, uh, trickery in order to gain Oscar buzz. And, uh, now, you know, hopefully we won't see any more from his company pulling this crap, but, um... Uh, let me see if I can find a good jumping off point from the criticism because the wiki does include criticism of the Oscar bait of, of Oscar bait and Oscar baiting as it were uh, in 21st century with expensive and sometimes successful campaigns like the wine because that's the thing Weinstein pretty much bought their nominations by pay by pushing their product on the Academy voters so that's why they became more prominent and so, yeah, the term has become a pejorative among some critics. They suggest the producers and studios are essentially gaming the system. Making movies was less attention to quality than to, than to the features that Academy voters have shown a preference for. At its... Uh, Sacktown, from Sacktown Magazine editor S.T. Van Aersdale, uh, in a Slate article that he or she wrote... Who's that? Well, first, what's Sacktown Magazine? Bi-monthly publication based on various cultural offerings in Sacramento. Ooh. Um, and then who is... Uh, S.T. Van Aersdale. Oh, well, I guess it doesn't matter. They don't, they don't really cite anything else from that article. But basically, uh, Van Aersdale writes, At its worst, Oscar Bates stinks up the room with its presence to pre pretense to prestige. Which... Pretty much, yeah. That's how. That's how. That's that's my. That's I kind of agree. Um, and uh, okay, he cites St. Van Aerstale. He cites in particular 2011 11's extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, in Van Aerstale's words, the producer plotted the whole project the way he'd plotted numerous earlier films, from The Hours to No Country for Old Men to Doubt. Acquire an elite property, attach elite principles, and sell the whole package to a studio as an elite fall movie season heavyweight. Sometimes that movie, sometimes the movie that results is great. Sometimes it isn't. It hardly matters. Fold an awards campaign into the film's more conventional marketing, and you might be able to cash in on the buzz. The strategy worked, sort of, though the combination of conspicuous campaigning and hard-ass backroom weed weedling for which Rudin is renowned. Extremely Loud got its Best Picture nomination, plus a token Best Supporting Actor nod for, von, for uh, Max von Sydow, who I believe in the movie plays a deaf or mute uh, homeless man. Uh, the producer baited the hook, dropped it in the choppy sea of Oscar. Oh, I like that term. Thanks, Van Aersdale. I'll, I think I'll use that. The sea of Oscar. And came away with the gratification and the sellable Im Im imprimatur of at least a few Academy nibbles. Uh, the particular nomination, which came after the film had not received any major film award nominations such as Golden Globes, was widely criticized. It was especially noted that it received a score of 45% on Rotten Tomatoes, the worst score received by any Best Picture nominee in the site's history. So keep that in mind. The lowest rated Best Picture nominee in all of Rotten Tomatoes, who I 
very you know I very much have dubious, uh, very much dubious relationship with anyway, uh, is extremely loud and incredibly close. I only know it because I uh, I only I mainly know it because it got a lot of uh, negative buzz for its portrayal of somebody with Aspergers. And I know Linty covered it in her uh, loose cannon for... Linty Ellis covered it in her loose cannon for 9-11 in the second part. Uh, where it's, where she was talking about the, you know, depictions of 9-11 in the media. Uh, other critics think the term is overused. Uh, mediocre movies that conform to pre-existing Oscar rubric is far, be far better than the more intense, interesting films that get passed over. Uh, is what, um, who is that? Buchanan. Vulture editor Kyle Buchanan, uh, says that he believes the term is, is used only for mediocre movies that conform to a pre-existing Oscar rubric far better than the more interesting films that get passed over. Citing Frost Nixon as an example, uh, at, over its over, which got a nomination in 2008 over better films like Wally, The Wrestler, Rachel Getting Married, or The Dark Knight. Uh, wait, I thought those got nominated as well. I guess it won? Did it win? I don't remember. Uh, pretty uncinematic stage play, and that neither of its stars had e ever been nominated for the Academy Awards before, whereas The Wrestler had several aspects associated with Oscar bait. Uh, critics of the phrase Oscar bait might tell you that making movies is already too difficult to do well without, a do well without adding the pressure of having an awards-worthy product, concedes uh, S.T. Van Ayersdale. He nevertheless defended the use of the term. The takeaway from Weinstein and the rest should be that Oscar bait is a reductive concept that's bad for movies. Uh, rather, bad movies are bad for movies. I like that. I like that. I like that sentence. I like that quote. I may have to do that. I may have to take that. Uh, S.T. Van Aersdale. Bad movies are bad for movies. <laughs> um, what's this one? Uh... Since the race for awards that generate some good movies, he felt moviegoers should not be so dismissive. Uh, Oscar bait is the only reason that grown-ups have anything to watch at all to, in a movie theater anymore, with four months of award season compensating for the other eight months of craven superhero franchises, anemic romantic comedies, or whatever Adam Sandler wipes off his shoe. You had me, then you lost me, Van Aerstale. These award season movies are good for adults. Because God forbid superhero movies work for adults. Yeah, I wonder who's paying to see those movies, you asshat! Anyway, yeah, I have a, I have a, a, <laughs> a problem with the inherent biases against blockbuster movies, superhero movies, anything considered mainstream or popular. Not everything that is mainstream or popular is bad. There is good in most of those movies, if not all, or people would not be continuing to see them. People would not support these things if they didn't find some quality in them worth paying for. You ass clown. Sorry. Um, this is why I'm not a fan of film circles. Because uh, oddly enough, you get to the point where guys sound like uh, Cal Colgren as, uh, as, as sort of a caricature of the film snob critic in uh, Browse Held High. He's since moved on to more discussing film intellectually, but for a while he was very much the caricature of the of the film snob uh, early on. Uh, not so much as uh, Brad Jones' cinema snob, where, who reviews trashy movies but talks as if he's a, a you know, a, 
uh, yeah, a film snob. But the Kyle, while he is very, the thing with Kyle is he's one of those guys that I enjoy hearing about and hear and not about, but from and hearing about film through him. Because he sound, he definitely sound, he definitely comes off like he knows what he's talking about. And being a film student, he does know what he's talking about for the most part. But more often than not, in film circles, you will find guys who talk like the cinema snob or uh, Owen Citizen, Kyle Cogren's uh, persona for his time on that guy with the glasses. You'll find them doing that unironically. Where they will just genuinely talk about films with all of the pretension and know-it-all nature of a, of, of, a, of a true snob. And that's, seen, and that's big in critical circles as well. That's why I'm not big on film critics and I'm definitely not big on sites like Rotten Tomatoes. Because you have to... Film criticism is in and of itself... An art form, almost. And not every critic can break down their thoughts on a movie in stars. That's why I never... Since doing this podcast, I've never wanted to do a ranking system. I know um, ranking systems are easy. That's why everybody does them. Even if it's even if it's something more nebulous, like uh, the Double Toasted uh, ranking system that they carried over from Spill. Which is um, some old BS. Uh, well, F you for the worst of the worst. Some old BS uh, for bad movies. Uh, rental for decent movies. Okay movies. Uh, matinee for good movies, but not great movies. And then um, full price for good for really good movies. And then better than sex for the best movies. Um, it's a unique and interesting system. And I think it's better than the star system. Because that's the thing. You can aggregate a star system or the number system like... X out of five, X out of four, X out of ten. Uh, you can rank, you can, you can aggregate those numbers and make a score for the movie based on that. But film as an art form, you can't always pin down. Your viewpoints on a film are based on all of the things that your brain comprehends through. You know, all your biases, all your preferences. All the things that cater to you and all the things that, you know, you seek out and the things that I, you identify as and with. And so your, your subjective viewpoint of a movie will change based on when you see it, what mood you're in, uh, the, your, you know, where you're, you know, what kind of, uh, where you're at, where you're at in your life. You know that's why younger movies there's a there's a high there's a lower threshold for enjoyment of younger uh, movies when you're younger based on when you're older because your threshold for what you look for in a film changes, and I think the problem is people critics especially but film people and critics love to lambast the idea of low 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 standards for what people see as quality. That's why. Even in bad movies that I believe are bad, and I think that I objectively find uh, not good, in that they have bad co film continuity from scene to scene, they have bad uh, production value, they have bad writing, they have bad performances, things of that nature. Things that I objectively view as bad can, all, but once again, things that are objectively good or bad have no bearing on whether or not you like a thing.
That's why I've also moved from best and worst to favorite and least favorite. And I think that's the key is that identifying that film is an art form is an art form. It cannot be labeled as best worst because that while some of that stuff is objective, when you get to a certain point, how do you objectively grade a movie as better or worse when it's re when all the films are good? Like if you take a look at these years uh, best picture nominees. In fact, let's do that right now. Where is the link to the Academy? Oh, there it is. The wiki uh, hyperlink for once you've clicked it is uh, not exactly the best. It blends the it, the purple blends alongside the black letters of the rest of the site. I feel like they should make it more like a green or something. So, well, like make the main hyperlink green and then make the clicked hyperlink a lighter, uh, you know, a more blue. That way it doesn't blend into the background, but that's more contextualizing things, uh, things like hyperlink, uh, nature and whatnot. Uh, here we go. 2017 Osc uh, Oscars nominees. Best picture. Call Me By Your Name. Why is Dark Darkest Hour is not a good movie? It's not a well-made movie. Doug Kirk is better made than Darkest Hour. Why is Dark... Moving along. Uh, let's talk about the good ones. Call Me By Your Name. Dunkirk. Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. Think about those eight movies. I'm not even including Darkest Hour because that thing is loaded with all kinds of bollocks, as the British put it. It is not a well-made movie. Why is it up against things that are actually good and well-made and objectively better? <laughs> Asshats. This is what I'm talking about with the whole producers shoving... Uh, Certain shoving their movies into the uh, academy's hands so that they get so that they are more prominent in the voters' minds than genuinely good movies because the voters can't be bothered to seek out the movies they're, that are for themselves assholes. We can get into the uh, animation thread for that as well. I'm going to talk about that in a bit because the full nominees list is out. Um, but let's talk about those movies. I haven't seen Kobe by Your Name and I haven't seen Phantom Thread. I've seen the others. How do you objectively determine, objectively, which is the better made movie between Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards? Objectively. How do you objectively determine which of those movies is the best movie? How do you determine that? How do you, when the cinematography works, when the writing is good, when the performances are excellent, when the production value and the design is all well done, how do you determine what is objectively the best movie? And not even of the nominees. Some of my picks. My favorite movie of last year was The Last Jedi. Some of my other no picks were Captain Underpants, Logan, and uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. How do you determine objectively, out of all these good movies, these well-made movies, what is the best? And that's the problem with an art form. Objectively, there is no way to determine what is the best movie. Because after a certain point, all movie quality reaches a plateau. You can't be better than a certain point in quality. After a certain point, you make a movie well enough that it is great 
and you can't determine between movies on that same plateau. How do you determine which point is higher on the plateau when they're all about the same quality? And ultimately, that is the downfall of awards ceremony, these award ceremonies. The reason they don't ultimately work out is because objectively, all the nominees can be great and of, of the same quality. So determining who is the best is subjective. It is subjective to the voters, whoever the voters may be, the audience members, fellow critics, fellow actors, fellow producers, uh, the Hollywood elite behind the Academy, the foreign press, and the Gordon, in the case of the Golden Globes, their biases, their preferences are all subjected, are all subjective to what they perceive as the best of something. So, oh wow, they really couldn't. I mean, I guess, sorry, I'm looking at the nominees again. Uh, in fact, I'll break down the nominees since they were given, uh, I think this past week, uh, with Tiffany Haddish and Andy Serkis, of all people. <laughs> uh, that, I heard great things. Uh, I love Tiffany Haddish. She's such an awesome woman. I want to see her in all the things. So yeah, the nominees were announced. I'll cover them uh, after the discussion. But uh, I saw uh, original screenplay and like maybe three billboards could be dropped out for um, Hostiles. But wow, I mean, you got really great. All, all of them are just like phenomenal. Like how do you pick, pick you know, pick one, throw one out and put the other in? Uh, but well, I'll get into that during the discussions. Um, during the other part of the discussion. So yeah, Oscar bait slash awards bait. It exists for a reason because the voters of the Academy and in turn other Hollywood vote the other Hollywood elite voting groups, the Screen Actors, the the Screen Actors Guild, the Producers Guild of America, the foreign the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They all see seek certain things to ex to exemplify, to call out what they believe to be the best aspect of their craft, of their genre. And a lot of times they play out the idea that um, superhero genres can't be good because they're pop. That's why more populist, uh, uh, sort of award ceremonies like the Kids' Choice Awards or the MTV Movie Awards, uh, they tend to favor more mainstream films because it acknowledges that just because a film is mainstream, big-budget blockbuster doesn't mean it's bad. It, mean, it doesn't negate its quality because it favors a wider audience. And I feel like the ideas behind these award ceremonies now is that They've pinholed their voters to a point where they literally, they, they, you, you heard what I said during like the extras bit and Seth Meyers did a thing about it and um, Tropic Thunder poked fun at it. The idea of the Oscar voting public, the Oscar voters and the other uh, Hollywood voters have a type of movie they prefer to acknowledge. And when you make that movie for them, don't be surprised when you get called out as Oscar bait. And I'm calling out Bob Chipman right now, damn it. Calling out, thinking like, oh, The Post is just Oscar bait. Ooh, Steven Spielberg and, you know, it's not even, a, not even that great of a movie. Boo! Boo on you! 
you get to, I'm calling you out. I'm calling Corey Coleman out, too, over on Double Toasted. I'm dropping beef on my tiny podcast nobody listens to. Throwing shade on throwing shade on my man Steve with the with the post one of my favorite movies of his in a long time one of my favorite one of my favorite one of the reasons I admire him as a director throwing shade like oh man that's just Oscar bait while the while the Phantom while Phantom Thread comes out and like oh my god such a good movie so well shot oh and. Oh, and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is so exquisite in his performance. You, you do not get to just call the post-Oscar bait without acknowledging Phantom Thread is the same damn thing. Paul Thomas Anderson is a critical darling. Daniel Day-Lewis throwing around the, well, I'm going to retire from filmmaking again. All of that, of course, is Oscar bait. It is basically going down on its knees for the Oscar voters, for the Academy. It's like, hey, look what I got for you. Don't you want this? Don't I got this? Look what I got for you. Isn't this what you want? Isn't this exactly what you guys like? I made it just for you. So suck on it. I don't even care if the Phantom Thread is any good. I'm calling out BS where I seize it. Ah. Sorry, that got away from me. Um, so, uh, let's move on, shall we? Uh, I think that kind of gets all of my points across with, uh, in summation, Oscar bait or awards bait as I tend to, because since, since a lot of the awards tend to cannibalize each other, honestly, like you've heard me say for like the Critics' Choice, PGA, SAG, Golden Globes, all of them seem to have a common thread with their winners, so these awards ceremonies, these these awards voters tend to cannibalize each other when it comes to their winners. So I would not be surprised if the winners were who they were. That's probably going to be my Oscar voting pool when it comes down to it. Uh, speaking of which, so um, oh I forgot the whole point the the idea that just because a movie is of that genre doesn't make it bad. Good good example of an awards bait movie that is bad. The artist. The artist completely, um, completely catered to the Oscar voters. The Academy members who voted at Best Picture, of course they were going to, because they love patting themselves on the back. Oh, look at film. Wasn't film so great? So we have such a luscious history. Of course that one. What were the other winners that year? Now I'm pissed. What were the other winners? Here's the list of ceremonies. Uh, that was 2009, I believe. Was it 2009 or 2008? Let's find out. Hurt Locker was 2009. Was it 2011? King's Beast was 2010. Uh, Artist was 2011. Honor the best films of 2011. Nominees that year. Descendants. Really good Martin Scorsese movie. Stream loud and incredibly close. We talked about that. Uh, the Help. Eh, not kind of uh, problematic in retrospect. Hugo. Excellent Martin Scorsese movie. Two Martin Scorsese movies got nominated that year. Holy cow. Um, Midnight in Paris. I haven't seen it, and I have no interest in seeing it now, after, <laughs> considering who made it. Uh, Moneyball. Haven't seen it. Tree of Life. 
Wow. And War Horse, which is one of the lesser Steven Spielberg. That one reeks of Oscar bait. So all of the nominees. So when the, what came out that year? What all came out in 2011? What are some of the movies in 2011? You got Deathly Hallows, man, Dark of the Moon, ugh, On Stranger Tides, ugh, Breaking Dawn. Is it possible Ghost Prodigal was good? Fast Five, Hangover 2, The Smurfs. 2011 was a bad year, man. Like, let's look at the rest of the year. No strings attached to the Green Hornet. Hobo with a shotgun. Fun, uh, like, Grindhouse-style movie. Um, Nomeo and Juliet. Uh, Sanctum. <laughs> the might as well be a documentary about caves by, uh, frickin', what's his name? What's his name? It's producing, uh, Alita Battle Angel. Um, James Cameron. Uh, Justin Bieber, Never Say Never. The Eagle. One of those stupid swords and sandal movies. Take Me Home Tonight. Beastly. Oh my god, how did you find any good movies in, 20, in 2011? My god, The Beaver. Dylan Dog, Dead of Night. Diver Whippy Kid, Sucker Punch. With 2011, Hop. Scream 4, Atlas Shrugged Part 1. We have a Pope? Hoodwink 2, Hood versus Evil. Medea's Big Happy Family. Prom by Walt Disney Pictures. Jumping the Broom, which I can't speak on. I don't know if it's any good. We need to talk about Kevin. The Tree of Life. Melancholia. Uh, the Skin I Live In, which I've heard good and bad. Drive? Wait, why wasn't Drive nominated for Best Picture? Of all those movies, why was Drive not nominated for Best It got all that love. Why wasn't it nominated for Best Picture? Yeah. Super 8, Bad Teacher, Green Lantern, Cars 2, Larry Crown. Like, I think the best I've seen so far is Horrible Bosses, and that's not even that great of a comedy. Cowboys and Aliens. Friends with Benefits. Wait, okay, this was the year of Captain America the First Avenger. That's the best thing to come out all year. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, that's good. Glee, the 3D concert movie. Conan the Barbarian, 30 minutes or less. The Fright Night remake was good. Spy Kids, all the time in the world. The Anson March was alright. The Three Musketeers by Paul W.S. Anderson. Apollo 18. Shark Night. Oh, Shane came out that year. Wait, what? Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy? Why weren't these nominated? The Raid Redemption. Bucky Larson, Born to be a Star. Warrior? Why was... What the hell? The Descendants, which won Best Writing, but... Uh, best best screen, Original Screenplay, but... Uh, what the... What the hell, Hollywood? Why are you... Dominating gar I mean, I get 2011 was a garbage year. Oh, yeah, fun fact. Uh, I I badmouthed the Straw Dogs remake that came out that year on Twitter, and Rod Lurie, the writer-director of it, got pissed at me. <laughs> so, fun fact about the Straw Dogs remake. Dolphin Tail. What's Your Number? The Footloose remake. The Thing pre-boot. Re uh, pre uh, Paranormal Activity 3. The Adventures of Tintin, Puss in Boots, uh, J. Edgar, uh, The Muppets, A Very Harold and Kumar Current 3D Christmas, Arthur Christmas, which was good, Jack and Jill, Happy Feet 2, 
Uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, what a, oh, the wait, The Great came out in December of 2011? I thought it came out in January of 2012. Huh. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Chipwrecked. Sherlock Holmes 2, A Game of Shadows. Uh, what was The Darkest Hour? Emil Hirsch, Olivia Thirlby, Rachel Taylor, Max Minghella, Chris Gorhack. Don't recognize it. We Bought a Zoo! And, and The Iron Lady. 2011 was not a good year in film. Wow, I'm so glad I waited until 2012 to start making reviews. That was an actually good year in film. So... Yeah, I mean, the art... So yeah, The Artist, which, which was considered the best movie to come out in 2011, catered specifically to the, to the Academy voters. Is it any wonder it won? It seems... Because that's the thing. It, much like with... The, the only thing I would add to the idea of mentally challenged or disabled to, and Holocaust movies is films about, films about Hollywood. Films about filmmaking, those tend to do well. Uh, look at La La Land. La La Land was a throwback movie to like French musicals or whatever. I forget what it was. But like old musicals from like the 40s and forties and 50s. Of course the voters are going to go gaga for that. Thank God Midnight won. Mid not Midnight, Moonlight. Moonlight, yeah, Moonlight was a much better movie. God, La La Land is garbage. I don't care if you like it, it's still a garbage movie. Um, objectively, it's garbage. Uh... Yeah, and I and I, I'm gonna say that. Fight me on it. I don't care. La, I will. I will go to my grave saying La La Land is a garbage movie. I don't care if you like it or not. I'm still calling it garbage. Uh, but yeah, that seems to be the big thing with the with those voters, with the voting elite of Hollywood, is that they love movies about either themselves or that placate to their inherent uh, preferences in terms of like depicting thing, things that are tr that are um, heartbreaking to watch on screen. You know, things like mental illness, things like physical disabilities, things like the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is a great, is a ter not, not a, it's a great, it's a, no, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing, but it makes for a great subject matter for drama. It's a great source of drama. But at the same time, the idea that it, 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 it has been almost, it has been, think about it this way. Slavery and the Holocaust were two of the most horrifying aspects of world history in, on a massive scale in, in, the in the last 300 years. Hollywood has turned that into fodder for patting itself on the back. That's what these awards are. They're patting themselves on the back for a job well done. That means that they've essentially turned the, some of the most tragic events in world history into a way to congratulate themselves. Gives you, a, there's a hot take for you. Hollywood has basically has basically ruined the Holocaust in in the sense that, in common parlance, they basically made it into uh, a cash cow. The idea that, oh, if we make a movie about the Holocaust that isn't like a trashy B-movie exploitation sort of grindhouse flick, 
If we make a serious drama about the Holocaust, it makes means buku bucks. You know what's a great uh, movie on this subject that, does, that I feel is very underappreciated? Christopher Guest did a movie just about this subject. Look up the movie for your consideration. It is a movie inherent. I'm surprised it's not in this uh, article. For your consideration is in, is in, is intended to be a mockery of this style of filmmaking. In fact, uh, let me pull it up for those who don't know. For you, because the title comes from the actual terminology given to when when a film is submitted to the Academy Awards. Uh, the film title is a phrase used in trade advertisements to promote films for honor, such as the Academy Awards. <laughs> uh, this is written by, uh, well, not written by, oh yeah, written by Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy. This is Christopher Guest being the guy who did Spinal, this is Spinal Tap, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, Almighty Wind. This this almost slipped through his crack, slipped through the cracks because I feel like nobody talked about it, but for film, it is exactly what Waiting for Guffman was for theater, what Best in Show was for dog shows, what A Mighty Wind was for uh, folk music. This is for filmmaking and for film for Hollywood. Uh, okay, the premise revolves around three actors, played by Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, and Harry Shearer, who learn that their performances in the film they haven't even completed yet, Home for Purim, a drama set in the mid-1940s American South, are supposedly generating a great deal of award season buzz. And during, like, the big ones are uh, Harry Shearer and Catherine O'Hara get, like, big egos while they're filming, while Parker Posey is kind of like, it's kind of like, just rolls through the whole thing like this is her first, because this is her first gig. <laughs> uh, here we go. Uh, character actress Marilyn Hack. <laughs> Love that. Despite having been in the entertainment industry for thirty years, is best known for playing a blind prostitute in the film. For oh my god, this is this is so beautiful. How did this how did this go underappreciated? Why is nobody talking about this? Uh, Victor Allen Miller, played uh, played by Shearer, is an, also an acting veteran who is known for to the public as the hot dog wearing mascot for a kosher line of Frankfurters. Together, they are cast in a new low budget film called Home for Purim as the patriarch and dying matriarch of a Southern U.S. Jewish family in the 1940s. Parker Posey plays their lesbian daughter who who has come home along with her girlfriend, played by Rachel Harris. Rounding out the cast is Brian Chubb. <laughs> But Christopher Moynihan, uh, playing Webb's brother who has returned home from the Navy. The family reunites in time to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Purim. <laughs> I need to rewatch this. It's, uh, yeah, like, like a, um, uh, uh, Chris, Catherine O'Hara gets a boob job, uh, later on in the build up to the award, to the award season. It's, Oh my God, this is such a beautiful movie. Uh, because of an offhand remark that turns into a full-blown rumor, Oscar buzz begins around all the cast with the exception of Chubb. Each begins obsessing about the award potential in his or her own way. Uh, uh, it's beautiful. Oh God, I need to rewatch this. I've, I remember watching this when it came out in, I think, 2006. Yeah. And it was, it's just, oh man. <laughs> it's such a beautiful, de it's like, terror at the, uh, like a like like a like a parody of what happens in Hollywood, and this is it's, it's exactly the kind of stuff I'm talking about with uh, award season and Oscar buzz specifically. The idea that you know you know small character driven dramas, which once again 
The award season movies aren't bad movies in their genre, but the idea that they placate to adults and you know you know people with a refined palate of cinema, the that's what gives them a bad rap. Like, I I honestly. In all honesty, I would love to do a side series where I critique the Oscar nominees for any given year and give my take on what I believe is to be objectively the best uh, based on what I see. But that would have to be like a Patreon thing or um, full time. I would have to be doing this full time in order to afford to do that kind of stuff. And sadly, because sadly I can't do it given my current schedule. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff that gets under my skin because it's so it's become a tradition in Hollywood and it's all but it's also I feel like debt is detrimental perfect example of what I believe to be the perfect fixer not perfect there's no such thing as a perfect fixer anything can go wrong and there's always assholes trying to game the system like Weinstein or like a car whatever the car guy was that did the did the push for deer hunter which is a good movie but the whole reason that we people saw it is because of of a trick they pulled uh, on the academy, for better or for worse. And I feel like your cutoff date should be should be December, December thirty first. But your release should be wide, because that's the thing. I don't want to discredit indie films. But unless you got a, unless people are, I feel like it should be made possible that everybody should have to, should get the chance to have seen an Oscar contender. Instead of dealing with, oh, we'll release it later once all the buzz is building around it. Instead of that sort of uh, cynical take on the movie, it should be about what came out and was a feature in the year that was it should not be and it should be a uh, it should be a chance for all film go uh, if you can't if you couldn't tell i'm a very populist sort of guy so yeah i want all of the people to be able to chance to see what what they had the chance to see anybody from butte montana to portland maine everybody should be have the chance that does not live in hollywood or new york in los angeles or new york to see the a best picture nominee, it should not be. They should not be forced to see it on DVD halfway through the next year. That's that's why it bothers me the way it's set up, and unfortunately, it was set up that way by assholes in the industry who tried to game the system. And hey, they gamed the system. As much as you want to criticize the term Oscar bait, the producers are still allowed to game the system. And until you undo that problem, until you make until you make a concerted effort to undo the damage, you can't you'll have to settle for the fact that you're called out on your bull crap. Oh, Scott Scott Adsitson for your consideration. Um Scott Adsit for for those who remember is uh the one uh uh writer on 30 Rock. Who is the what was his name? What was the character's name? Um Pete Hornberger. He's Pete Hornberger on 30 Rock, and he plays the voice of Baymax uh, in uh Big Hero 6. Uh, apparently he's in he and Sandra Oh 
along with John Krasinski and Richard Kind. Uh, as well as uh, Ricky Gervais. Once again, why is nobody talking about four-year consideration? Here's, here's some homework for you to take a note from the Beer Bros. If you haven't already, go seek out four-year consideration. I know I want to re-watch it especially since there's, like, one movie coming out next week. So I think I'll rewatch Warrior Consideration in the lead-up to the Oscars, because I remember really liking that movie. And I want to see if it holds up. Um, but yeah, just because something is considered Oscar bait doesn't make it bad. But it definitely applies to movies that cater to the Oscar voter. And as much as people want to criticize that, that that's limiting, at the same time, it, it, the term exists for a reason. Even from, from 1948, when the term was coined in the New Republic, Oscar bait exists for an exact reason. Because people have come to realize the Academy has a certain preference. They have preferences, and those preferences can easily be exploited, and they haven't been proven wrong. Like, Moonlight was an upset. Honestly, Moonlight was an upset. I did not. Ex I would have easily expected La La Land to win because... Once again, the Academy has a preference. And until they expand their voter base, and until they get, get better, could get more a more diverse, both age-wise and, uh, uh, you know, color and other background-wise, uh, there's, there's going, they're going to continue to vote for the same thing. Things about the Holocaust, things that feature mental disability or physical deformity, and things that placate to uh, high-minded intellectuals. Until, until the Oscars is never going to be about any uh, the film, film as a whole and Hollywood as a whole until you can get past the inherent biases of the Academy. And unfortunately, that's probably never going to happen. So who cares? So once again, who cares what the Oscars thinks? Let's talk about it anyway. And, uh, anywho, uh, speaking of, speaking of who cares about the Oscars, let's talk about them anyway. Uh, this year's nominees. Uh, we're gonna go down the list as it is on the wiki. Uh, I called them out, I said the best picture nominees, Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. Uh, the only ones I wasn't able to see out of these, out of this list is, uh, Call Me By Your Name and Phantom Thread. Everything else I was able to see, personally, uh, the, well, only one ended up in my top seven of the year, so I, I honestly give it to The Shape of Water, uh, personally. But, once again, most of them, aside from Darkest Hour, are genuinely, objectively good films. So, I may not have liked Dunkirk or Lady Bird, but that doesn't mean they weren't objectively good films. Uh, Best Director, Noel, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro for Shape of Water. An actually diverse, uh, I mean, I, maybe I could use for, we could do for some more, um, uh, some more, some more women in there. I mean, Greta Gerwig is kind of the token. They're all kind of tokens aside from, but at the same time, there's only five. Of course, I, I think out of the five, that any, anyone that isn't a white guy is going to be a token, sadly, because there's only five people there. Uh, haven't seen Phantom Thread, but Best Director I'd probably give to either Jordan Peele or Del Toro. And Del Toro seems seemed to have won it before, so he he's probably the the uh, the one to go with the the big one in the pool. Um, for Best Picture, 
Honestly, it would probably go to either Darkest Hour. Mmm. Mmm. Maybe three billboards. That's been getting a lot of buzz. That's been winning a lot of the Best Picture awards. Uh, I could see. I I don't know if Shape of Water could. Shape of Water could shake it up and win. Phantom Thread maybe a come from behind sort of victory because that caters more to the Oscars sort of aesthetic. Uh, it's hard to say out of these nominees. Uh, I, I I couldn't tell you. I know personally my pick of them is Shape of Water, but it could go to literally any of them. I really hope it doesn't go to Darkest Hour. I feel like that's cheap. That's cheap. Uh, best Actor. Timothy Chalamet, who I just saw on Hostiles for uh, Call Me By Your Name. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread. Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out. Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour. And Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel Esquire. I feel like that one for Denzel was kind of a gimme. Like, I feel like there are better performances this year, but whatever. And once again, I feel like dropping Oldman for Christian Bale in Hostiles would have been a better choice because honestly eh, Oldman's Oldman's kind of doing a caricature he's not I feel like he's not doing any real great acting wise I feel like uh Denzel does more for acting and Daniel Kaluuya does do than Gary Oldman but I feel like he's the he's the one that's been winning the other award so that's probably the uh one the standout the one to watch out he's probably going to be the winner again for this for this year uh best actress Sally Hawkins for Shape of Water, Frances McDormand for Three Billboards, Margot Robbie for Titania, Saoirse Ronan for Lady Bird, and Meryl Streep for The Post. Honestly, I get—I haven't seen Titania. I can't say speak to that, but all of them are solid entries. I'd probably give it to Sally Hawkins because, honestly, she's giving she's giving a performance to somebody with a disability. But at the same time, I feel like Frances McDormand is also a standout because she's been winning it uh, to this point. I feel like this isn't Meryl Streep's year. This is an off year for her because she just also won for uh, Iron for the Iron Lady, which I feel is a way worse movie than The Post. People are not like guys like Bob Chibnall and Knocking the Post as a, as an Oscar bait. When I feel like it's a genuinely well made movie, you ass clown. Sorry, heated opinions on film brought to you by the Popcorn Junkie Podcast. Um, one to watch out for is Frances McDormand. She's the one that's been winning up to this point. I personally would probably give it to Sally Hawkins or Frances McDormand, honestly. Both of those two. Uh, best Supporting Actor, Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project, which I swear to God hasn't gotten any release wide up to this point. Uh, Woody Harrelson for three billboards. Uh, Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell for three billboards outside of Ebbing. Uh, Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water and Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World. Haven't seen Willem Dafoe in Florida Project, though I hear good things. Personally, I'd probably give it to Christopher Plummer. Because out of all those performances, while Sam Rockwell has been the winner up till now, I feel like Christopher Plummer gives the best performance out of all of the all the nominees. I feel like he's the standout for them. But then, but then I'm also a big fan of Christopher Plummer, so <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, all of them are solid nominees. Uh, I feel like Willem Dafoe is also a very underrated character actor, and I feel like he deserves some kind of recognition at this point. So even if it's just a nomination, that's great. Supporting actress, Mary J. Blige for the Netflix movie Mudbound. There's a Netflix movie nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress. Good for you, Netflix. You're finally making a name for yourself for these ass clowns. I keep using the term ass clown. It's my it's been, it's become my go-to for this podcast, I guess, because it's because otherwise it would go much harsher. Um, 
need to watch that too. I should probably watch that since it's on Netflix. Uh, since next week is going to be light. Uh, Allison Janney for I, Tanya. Been the winner so far. She's the standout. Uh, Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread. Haven't seen it. Can't speak. Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird. And Octavia Spencer for Shape of Water. Uh, I feel like Octavia Spencer is kind of the throw in there because she's been a previous nominee and, you know, she was also in a long running, you know, a fellow nomination for other categories. But I feel like she wasn't, that wasn't like her standout performance. I feel like she stood out more in The Help than in Shape of Water. But, you know, once again, it's Octavia Spencer. She's good. What do you want? Octavia Spencer is becoming the black Meryl Streep in the sense that her and uh, Viola, Viola Davis is Viola or Viola Davis? I, I've, I've heard both, but um, they become they're becoming like the black Meryl Streeps in the sense that uh, they're they they're good. Yes, we get it. Moving on, <laughs> let's talk about other people. Um, but good for Mary J. Blige. I uh, I think that's her first nominee. I uh, then I'm, I know her more as an as an R and B singer than as an actress. So. Good for her for, get, for, for getting recognized. Um, I'm assuming they're all excellent, and Alice and Jenny has been winning so far, so she's the one to look out for, but I could see giving to, I could see giving it to any of these actresses. Best in Original Screenplay, The Big Sick, Get Out, Lady Bird, Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. Once again, I feel like tossing Three Billboards and putting in Hostiles was a better choice. Uh, that or Lady Bird, because honestly, Lady Bird's not that great of a, not that interesting of a screenplay. I feel like it's a better character performance than it is a straight up than a better written movie, uh, but that's just me. Uh, Big Sick, I kind of am rooting for because I really hope that wins because Kumail and Emily made a, an amazing movie and I want them to win. But honestly, it's probably going to go to like Lady Bird or Shape of Water, maybe Three Billboards. Uh, they may give it the three billboards if they're going to give uh, best. I guess the other thing, too, is that the more technical categories tend to go for the big nominees if they're not going to get best picture. That's another thing to watch out for. Uh, best Adapted Screenplay, Call Me By Your Name, based on the novel by Andre Asiman. Uh, the Disaster Artist, based on the novel by Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell. Uh, well, based on the book by Tom, not the novel. It's an actual retelling of actual events. Uh, Logan. Logan, surprise nominee, based on the character from the X-Men comic books. And uh, Molly's Game, based on the memoir by Molly Bloom. And Mudbound, based on the novel by Hilary Jordan. So that's two nominees for a Netflix movie. Uh, that isn't a documentary. So good for them. They're getting recognized by, by, by these film snobs. Best Adapted, I kind of want to go to Logan because... When else is a comic book movie at since the Dark Knight gonna get a nomination? So I really hope it goes to it. Uh, I, the only one I hope it doesn't go to is Molly's Game because Molly's Game is an atrociously written story. There's a reason Aaron Sorkin wasn't nominated for anything else, but they feel like throwing him a bone for his screenplay, and I feel like that's that's cheating. Like there's way better. Drop Molly's Game. Put something else in there. Put something better written than that because Molly's Game was a piece of garbage. Would have been a, would have been on one of my worst of the, one of my least favorite end of the year list. It was so bad, ugh. And of course, the most contentious category for people in this for people who are fans of this genre, animated feature. The nominees are The Boss Baby, The Breadwinner, Coco, Ferdinand, and Loving Vincent. Now, of course, we all know what the snub is for this one. Why no Captain Underpants? You nominated a DreamWorks movie and you don't pick Captain Underpants? What's the matter with you? But on top of that, there's way better uh, animated movies. 
that came out this past year. Here. Damn it, I'm looking it up right now. Animated movies in 2017. What what do we all came out? We know Coco's going to win because Lego Batman could have been nominated. I would have accepted Cars 3 over the Boss Baby or Ferdinand. Captain Underpants. Uh, My Little Pony, the movie, probably wasn't going to get it. Breadwinner. Mary the Witch's Flower from uh, one of the former uh, Studio Ghibli folks. That could have been in there. What else we got? That was a director video. Uh, come on. There's something th- they, they released theatrically. No, Pokemon doesn't count. Uh, that's all director video. Come on. Where's the stuff that isn't director video? Mm. Nah, everything I'm seeing is all director video trash. Wait, No Malone was released this year and they're still trying to put it out in 3D, put it out in theaters next year? Wait, No Malone was released last year. They're still going to try and release it in theaters this year. Oof. Tehran Taboo. Okay, so you could easily go to foreign animated features. Why are you picking The Boss Baby and Ferdinand? We know you're going to give it to Coco, but at least don't, don't, What's the term? Don't insult our intelligence. Don't insult us by saying, oh, these are... The, I mean, thankfully, that was the Emoji movie isn't up there because then you know they're out of touch. But seriously, the Oscar... Once, I feel like this also derives from the idea that the Oscar... Uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is a bunch of snobs because they always nominate garbage animated movies in place of things that are genuinely... Like Loving Vincent... Great, great movie made entirely through watercolor deserves to be nominated. They usually do this. They usually nominate foreign animated features if there aren't enough from American studios. So why are you dumping The Boss Baby and Ferdinand so that they get to be called Academy Award nominated? What the hell? Jesus. All right, moving on to a less contentious category. Best foreign language film. Uh, I think it's all, mostly the nomination the other... Awards, A Fantastic Woman from Chile, The Insult from Lebanon, Loveless from Russia, On Body and Soul from Hungary, and The Square from Sweden. So I can't tell you. Once again, the the foreign language films are ones I'll never get a chance to see, honestly, probably. Unless it's something like released through Netflix or Hulu. Uh, Best documentary feature, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. I'll look these up uh, so we get an idea of what they're about. I should probably do that for, well, while opening up the stuff for Best Documentary, let's take a look at Best Foreign Language Film and what sounds what sounds the most compelling out of them. Can't speak to their quality, but I can at least speak to their um, premises. Uh, Chilean drama, A Fantastic Woman, Una Mujer uh, Fantastica. Marina and Orlando are in love and planning for the future. Marina is a young waitress and aspiring singer. Orlando is a 30, year, 30 years older than her and owns a printing company. After celebrating Marina's birthday one evening, Orlando falls seriously ill. Marina rushes him to the emergency room, but he passes away just after arriving at the hospital. Instead of being able to mourn her lover, suddenly Marina is treated with suspicion. The doctors in Orlando's family don't trust her. A woman detective investigates Marina to see if she was involved in his death. Orlando's ex-wife forbids her from attending the funeral, and to make matters worse, Orlando's son threatens to throw Marina out of the flat she shared with Orlando. Marina is a trans woman, 
And for most of Orlando's family, her gender identity is an aberration, a perversion. So Marina struggles for the right to be herself. She battles the same, very same folk forces that she has spent a lifetime fighting just to become the woman she is now. A complex, strong, forthright, and fantastic woman. I need to check this out. I want to see if this is any good. It sounds good. A, tra a, a trans woman uh, has to deal with prejudice in the wake of her lover's death. I like that. I like that premise. What else we got? The Insult from Lebanon. Lebanese Christian Tony and Palestinian refugee Yasser exchange harsh words after Yasser tries to repair a drain pipe on Tony's balcony. The fallout leads to violence, courtroom confrontations, and national attention. Hmm. So you're dealing with the uh, Palestinian. So it's this is getting uh, this is acknowledging the whole uh, Palestinian uh, it issue uh, in terms of like because there are Palestinian refugees in Lebanon uh, after they were. Uh, Exposed out of oh god, I still have to look into that for seven days in Entebbe. Oh god, I'm not looking forward to that. Uh, so that look that sounds interesting. I I still find uh, a Fantastic Woman's premise better, but they both sound like fantastic films. I wish I could have the time to check them out. Uh, Loveless from Russia and Moscow at the end of the school day. Students are departing on their way home. One 12 year old boy, Alexei, decides to take an indirect path home rather than using regular city streets takes a path which leads him to walk by a local river in a wooded area on the outskirts of town. He appears to be in no particular rush to get home. His parents, Zhenya and Boris, are in the midst of obtaining a divorce in, with much animosity. They are portrayed as having divergent and incompatible personalities, both of trying to form new lives and new relationships. One day it's discovered that the boy has disappeared from home and his mother calls the police for assistance. At first the police see this as a simple case of a runaway child and expect the boy to return home within a day or two. However, when Alexei does not return, then another supervisor takes over the case and promptly initiates a preliminary search for the boy by sending the parents to estranged relatives in the hope of locating him. They are first sent to see if Alexei is at his mother's parents. Alexei is not there when they arrive, though their trip to visit her out of town is punctuated by tension between the estranged relatives and Boris is verbally berated and excoriated by Xenia. On, return, on the return trip home, her, her verbal abuse escalates to the point where Boris discharges her on the rural roadway before they get back to town. Okay, so it's a family drama. Interesting. Yeah, I, that, that definitely sounds like something, you know, worth seeing. Uh, next up, On Body and Soul. Hungarian, uh, not even going to try and pronounce that. <laughs> Hungarian is not uh, a language I'm very familiar with, so I don't want to uh, butcher it. Speaking of slaughtering, uh, 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 and I believe Andre... Uh, I think it's Andre, and it's E Andre. It's Andre with an E, so I think it's still pronounced Andre, or it could be pronounced Andre. Andre uh, and Maria work together in a slaughterhouse and have the same dream every night. They meet as deer in the forest. They realize this during an investigation when a psychologist interrogates everybody at the company where they work. Andre, however you pronounce it, is the CFO, and Maria and Maria. There's an there's an accent over the A, so it's Maria is the precise quality inspector who has autistic behavior. They're searching for the love that they have found as dear in their dreams, but it is more difficult in real life. So an autistic woman or a woman with, who has um, uh, symptoms of uh, autism disorder, autism spectrum disorder, and her supervisor and her, uh, and one of the executives of the company where they work uh, struggle with trying to form a romance despite the fact that they each have the same dream. That sounds like, I'm interested in that. That sounds cool. 
And the last one, The Square, which was also the name of a really good documentary based on uh, the the um, Arab Spring uh, protests in Tahir Square. Tahir? Tahir? Uh, Tahir, I believe, Square in, uh, in Cairo. 2017 satirical drama. Ooh. Uh, we'll cover the first couple of paragraphs because this goes in depth. Um, Christian is a curator of an art museum in Stockholm. During an interview with Anne, he is stumped when she reads him a text about one of the art pieces in his museum, which she found on the museum's website, and asks him to explain it to her. Clearly having no knowledge of the text and not understanding it, he stumbles through an answer which does not address the text in question. After he pull, is pulled into a confrontation in a pedestrian zone, Christian notices that his smartphone and wallet are missing, presumably stolen in a confidence, confidence trick. He is able to track the position of his phone to, on his computer, and when he and an assistant notice that the phone has stopped moving and seems to be in a large apartment block, they write a threatening and honest letter demanding the return of the phone and wallet by depositing them in a nearby convenience store. They print dozens of copies of the letter, and Christian throws a copy in the mailbox of each apartment late one night. Several days later, a package for Christian is actually deposited at the store, and it contains the phone in the completely untouched wallet. Okay, this this feels too in depth. This feels like I'm gonna it's gonna spoil the movie for me. Let's look it up on IMDb. They IMDb usually has more truncated. Here we go. A prestigious Stockholm museum's chief art curator finds himself in the times of both professional and personal crisis as he attempts to set up a controversial new exhibit. Ooh. So it's more about, so, so why is it about that at all? Why is it going into stuff about this wallet when it's actually about setting up a, a controversial art exhibit? Weird. Anyway, um, back to the, uh, we're going back to the, uh, documentary now. So out of those, I would, I would probably think that the Academy would give it to either, huh. hmm, good question. Maybe on Body and Soul, because that deals with uh, mental handicaps. Although, ha giving it to a, a movie about a trans woman would be good Would be good for them, too. Would show them as real progressives, you know what I'm saying? It would be like a good pol political move for them. But, honestly, any of these nominees sound like they could work. They sound like good stories. And I can't speak to objectively, which is objectively better than the other. Same with these documentaries. Uh, well, I'm on this page, I'm going to also open up the documentary shorts, since there's uh, wikis for them as well. All right, uh, nominees for Best Documentary Feature are uh, Edith and Eddie, which is about... Wait, is this short subject? Okay, that's the short subject. Whoops. Here we go. First up for feature-length documentary is Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. American documentary film centers on Abacus Federal Savings Bank, a family-owned community bank situated in Manhattan's Chinatown in New York City, which, because it was deemed small enough to jail rather than too big to fail, became the only financial institution to actually face criminal charges following the subprime mortgage crisis. Interesting. I like that idea. I like that, uh, I like that, uh, I like that, um, play on words. Instead of too big to fail, it's small enough to jail. Uh, next up. Faces Places, or in French, Visages Villages. Visages Villages. I don't know if S is pronounced or not. I'm not familiar with uh, French pronunciation rules as much. I'm more, more, I'm more familiar with the, with the, um, 
the singing way to pronounce French, but not speaking. Uh, Varda and Jayard visit villages and small towns throughout France to meet communities of people and create large portraits of themselves to blaster on the surroundings. That's cute. I can see why people would be into that. Next up, uh, Icarus. Chronicles uh, Brian Fogel, an amateur cyclist exploring the option of doping to win an amateur cycling race, but happening upon a major international doping scandal when he asks for the help of Grigory Rodchenkov, Grigory Rodchenkov, the head of the Russian anti-doping laboratory. Okay, so this is about the... Uh, oh, it's a Netflix documentary. I can watch that one, too. Sweet. Uh, so this is about the do cycling, cycling doping scandal from a couple of years ago, or was it just last year? No, it must have been like 2000... I swear that was like 2014 Olympics. So yeah, this is like 13, 14 uh, when this was going down. Uh, Last Man in Aleppo, uh, written and directed by Feroz Fayad. And once again, documents life in Aleppo during the war and particularly sheds light on the search and rescue missions of the internationally recognized White Helmets, an organization consisting of ordinary citizens who are the first to rush towards military strikes and attacks in the hope of saving lives. I think that got nominated for another one of the uh, nominees. Oh, here's another Netflix documentary. So Netflix got nominated twice in the documentary category. Uh, Strong Island, which centers on the murder of Yance Ford's brother. So it's a personal documentary by, by the director himself, Yance Ford, about the murder of his brother, which I'm not familiar with at all. Uh, this is apparently his first real major film, I think. Uh, not familiar with him at all. Uh, beginning in 2002, he worked as a series producer at PBS. And he won a filmmaker magazine, 25 New Faces of Independent Film. So then what did he what's he made? He doesn't even have, an, it doesn't even list his IMDb page. Or is he just, because he's up and coming? I'm, I'm not sure. I, 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 if you know about Yance Ford, uh, let me know. Uh, but I'm not familiar, I, I don't know anything about him. I do want to check out his documentary though. Uh, not sure which of those would make for the, would we, yeah, maybe uh, Last Men in the, Last Men in Aleppo, if they wanted to talk about, if they wanted to acknowledge that, but they may go for Abacus or Faces Places. Because honestly, Faces Places sounds like charming and quirky and probably something that would go for, they would go for over the more damning and hard hitting documentaries. Uh, next, next up, we're talking about this documentary short subjects. First up, uh, Edith and Eddie. About singer and Sure learned about the couple from a local news story and offered to pay for repairs to the couple's home and Edith's medical bills. Sher's also an executive producer. Thanks, Wikipedia, for not giving me a subject, for not giving me a premise. Edith and Eddie, ages 96 and 95, are America's oldest interracial newlyweds. Their love story is disrupted by a family feud that threatens to tear their... Aww. Well, I'm interested in seeing that. That's cool. That's That sounds like an interesting topic. All right. Uh, next up. Heaven is a traffic jam on the 405. Short film. Once again, the Wikipedia doesn't even give a premise. Mindy Alper is a tortured and brilliant 56-year-old artist who is represented by one of Los Angeles' top galleries. Acute anxiety, mental disorder, and devastating depression have caused her to be committed to a mental institution, undergo electroshock therapy, and survive a 10-year period without the ability to speak. Her hyper-self-awareness has allowed her to produce a lifelong body of work that expresses her emotional state with powerful psychological precision. 
Through intervals of your enactments, the building of an eight and a half foot paper mache bust of her beloved psychiatrist, and examining drawings made from the time she was a child, we learn how she has emerged from darkness and isolation to a life that includes love, trust, and support. It sounds sweet. That's a nice one. Uh, heroine with with brackets around the, with uh, parentheses around the e, uh, which is, seems to be which I'm guess which based on the look of it. Oh, it's another Netflix documentary. Let's we'll check out those Netflix documentaries. Uh, I should be more diligent with stuff I cover on Netflix and chat. Like I should be covering more Netflix original stuff. Like see what's new uh, from them, so I don't miss stuff like this. That way I can be like, oh yeah, I've seen that documentary uh, that was nominated. Because, I mean, it's right there. It's right there. Um, next up, uh, Knife Skills. Directed by, wait, like, the Thomas Lennon? Like, Reno 911 Thomas Lennon? Hold on a second. I'm looking this up. No, documentary filmmaker Thomas Lennon. There are two Thomas Lennons. One's a comedian, an improv, com one's an improv comic and filmmaker. The other is a documentary filmmaker. Uh, what does this, what does it take to build a world-class restaurant? Okay, so it's a 40-minute documentary about the life of the, of what it takes to make a French, uh, restaurant. And the last one is Traffic Stop, which I'm not, I should have just gone directly from the IMDb list because, uh, it, it was right there based on, uh, knife skills. Uh, Traffic Stop tells the story of Brian King. Brian, Brian, uh, B-R-E-A-I-O-N, King, uh, 26-year-old African-American school teacher from Austin, Texas, who was stopped for a routine traffic violation that, oh, this is the woman who was killed in Austin. Okay, this, so this is about police brutality. I would hope that one would win, because I feel like that needs more recognition, and I feel like, uh, like, knowing about the French restaurant industry, like, don't, don't we know about that enough? Like, is that really all that big a deal? Maybe there's something new Thomas Lennon reveals that we didn't know before. But I feel like, um, ultimately, either Heroin or Traffic Stop would probably be the ones to go with. Because talks about big things that are happening, uh, you know, nationwide. And there are big issues that need to be talked about. Although, they're all good nominees, from what I can tell. Uh, live action shorts, eh. Animated shorts, skip. Because, I mean, like, I guess you can watch those online later. But I'm also going over two hours now, so I'm really pushing length for this episode. Uh, original score, Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, Shape of Water, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and three billboards. I'm surprised they went with Star Wars and not uh, the post for John Williams. Interesting, interesting, interesting curveball. I like that. Um, given that, it, given um, that it's Star Wars for John Williams and not the post for John Williams... I would either give it to Star Wars, maybe Dunkirk. I haven't heard Phantom Thread's original score. Once again, I'd probably give it to something else. Uh, maybe Shape of Water. That's been what's winning. I'd probably be the one to watch out for, but I personally would probably give it to Star Wars. Uh, best original song, Mighty River by Mary J. Blige from Mudbound. Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name. Uh, Remember Me from Coco. Stand Up for Something from Marshall. Ooh, neat. There's, there's Marshall got a nominee for something. Something technical but hey good for them and then this is me from the greatest showman please don't give it to the greatest showman don't award these hacks they weren't that great for la la land they weren't that great for this movie either it's a it's a train wreck why would you glorify one of the worst people in american history thanks a lot hugh jackman says a lot about your character that you think he's a hero 
Um, personally, I would give it to Remember Me from Coco. I haven't heard Mighty River or Mystery of Love. I don't remember Stand Up for Something, but really pushing for Remember Me from Coco. Uh, best Sound Editing, Baby Driver, Blade Runner 2049, Dunkirk, Shape of Water, Last Jedi. Personally, I'll give it to Baby Driver. Uh, I feel like the sound editing was best on that one, but I could give, once again, you could give it to any of these. Uh, sound Mixing, I think what I'd give to, I would give to Dunkirk. Uh, same nominees for Sound Mixing. So it could go same movie for wins, or it could easily go for a different movie for the win for those. You can never tell. Best Production Design, The Beauty and the Beast Remake, Blade Runner, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Shape of Water. Once again, why Darkest Hour? It's not that great production design. There are way better design movies. You could easily have thrown that to Star Wars. Star Wars had better production design than the Darkest Hour. Dunkirk's not all that great production design. Uh, I guess maybe for the um, the ships that they used. I don't know. Uh, I'll get that to Blade Runner, maybe Shape of Water. Uh, best Cinematography, Blade Runner for Roger Deakins. Darkest Hour, eh, why is that there? Mudbound, Dunkirk. Shape of Water. Uh, I kind of want to give it to Deakins because I know he's a big figure in cinematography and he's well-respected and I feel, I'm not, don't think he's won yet. Um, oh, I just realized Judy Dench wasn't nominated for, for Victoria and Abdul. I just noticed that because it's, it's getting more technical nominations. So at least they recognize that it, she's, you know, that, hey, Judy Dench is playing an old British woman. Shock of shocks. What a great job she did. Um... Cinematography, I'd probably give to Blade Runner or Shape of Water again. Uh, Blade Runner, because Roger Deakins really is a good guy. And Shape of Water is really well shot. So is Dunkirk. Um, Darkest Hour is the only one that I don't think was all that well well, well put together, honestly. Um, Just Makeup and Hair, Darkest Hour. Bleh. Victoria and Abdul, really? And Wonder. Ooh, you made, a, you, made a kid, you made a pretty kid look ugly. You made a cute kid look ugly. Congratulations. Why, why, once again, why not Star Wars? Why not any of the other big blockbuster movies that use makeup? Why isn't Shape of Water on here? What, Doug Jones didn't go through all that makeup for nothing? What, did Doug Jones go through all that makeup for nothing? Duh, why are we giving it to Victoria and Abdul? Uh, weird. Costume design, Beauty and the Beast, Darkest Hour, Phantom Thread, Shape of Water, Victoria and Abdul. Only one I really liked out of any of those was Shape of Water, of the ones I've seen. And once again, I feel like Hostiles could be in here. I feel like any of the other better period pieces could be in here, but whatever. I don't care. Uh, film editing. Baby Driver? Okay. Dunkirk? And uh, I'm on, uh, I, Tanya, haven't seen. Shape of Water? Good. Three Billboards? Pretty good. Uh, I'll probably give it to Baby Driver for editing. Uh... Dunkirk, I wasn't a big fan of its editing. Uh, visual effects, Blade Runner, 2049, Guardian of the Galaxy, Volume 2, Kong Skull Island, Last Jedi, and War for the Planet of the Apes. So the nice thing about visual effects is it acknowledges the work that goes into the blockbuster movies. There's a lot of work that goes into those movies that, that needs to be recognized. Uh, so visual effects, oof. Oh, wow. Who do I give it to? Makeup is another one Guardians of the Galaxy could go for. What the hell? What, those makeups count for visual effects and not actual makeup? Eh, Oscars are such BS anyway. Um, um, shoot. Shoot, I don't know. I would probably give it to War for the Planet of the Apes just because that's the best those mocaps have looked. 
But any of those would be great winners in my book. So those are this year's Oscar nominees. Uh, yeah. That, uh, we'll see what the award, what the ceremony provides on in March. We have to wait a whole month before we find out who wins. And I'm going over long, so we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna cut it here, discussion wise. I thought there was something else I wanted to talk about, but this took way too long. So let's. I'm probably gonna have to freaking um, uh, you you know ex export this at a lower setting because it's going to be too long. But um, let's go into next next week's only release, uh, according to the numbers. Let me refresh just to be sure. Yep, according to the numbers, as of 10.40 p.m. on Sunday, the 28th of January, 2018, the only release coming out next weekend is Winchester. So let's take a look at that. It's gargantuan seven-storied structure with no apparent rhyme or reason. Built on the orders of a grieving widow. Sarah Winchester's mind is as chaotic as the house itself. We're worried about her sanity, Dr. Price. God, Jason Clark looks stupid in this. He has not good facial hair. Mrs. Winchester, it's a pleasure to finally meet you. Also, poor Helen Mirren having to be put in this garbage. Inspired by actual events. I do not believe in anything I cannot see or study. I feel the presence in the air, in the wall. How did ha I am baffled at how Helen Mirren ended up in a trashy horror movie. What the hell? The spirits killed by the rifle. Thirteen nails seals them in. I will do whatever it takes to protect my family. This spirit has a power we've not seen before. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. Academy Award winner Helen Mirren is in this garbage. And thank you, Todd, in the shadows, for reminding me just how hilarious these really, well, they, these movies, these trailers are for trying to make these songs sound scary when sung slow. Winchester, coming soon. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to ask my nephew if he's up for that. <laughs> because, wow, it's that's dumb. That is so stupid. Oh, uh, we'll have to see if it's um, it's uh, if it, if um, he's up for seeing a really bad horror movie because <laughs> oh, this looks bad. This looks so bad, and it's the only thing coming out. So I'll check out. You know what? Since that's the only thing coming out, I'll I'll take the time out to uh, watch it. Let's let's take a look at the trailer for Mudbound. Let's see what that's all about. So here we go. Trailer for Netflix's original movie and an Academy Award nominee, Mudbound. Violence is part and parcel of country life. I learned how to stitch up a bleeding wound, load and fire a shotgun. My hands did these things, but I was never easy in my mind. 
Filmed by D. Rees. I held his heartbeat in my head. All that time he was gone, I only prayed for him. Over there, I was a liberator. People lined up in the streets waiting for us. Sometimes I actually miss it. Yeah, me too. I'm coming back from the fire. Is that the original song, or is that just something for the trailer? Oh my God! It's the guy from uh. It's 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 um. Ah, uh, what's his name from uh, from uh, from. Who is that? Uh, why can't I remember his name? John something. Hard to imagine a better film this year. Jonathan Banks, that's who it was. When I think of the farm, I think of All right, hold on. I dreamed. I'll go back and look at that cast list. Ooh, I love that blues. Oh, that's the why. Netflix finally finally had to release it in um in uh theaters. So uh let's take a look at that cast list real quick. Cause I saw Jonathan Banks. Uh, funny story. He was also the vo he was also forced to be the voice in uh, the Thief of the Cobbler. If you if you don't remember if you don't remember, I think that was him. Or am I thinking of somebody else? Or is that that must have been somebody else? I couldn't have been him. Uh, Carrie Mulligan, Jason Clark, who looks way better in this than in Winchester. Jason Mitchell, Mary J. Blige, Rob Morgan, Jonathan Banks, and Garrett Hedlund. Solid cast. I'll definitely check it out this week. So since there's nothing else in coming out in theaters, I might as well check out something on Netflix. So. All right, that should be that should do it for this week, which means now it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us through our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to check out all of our other fine probing, pro, pro, programming on there, be sure to look. Be sure to look us up. All we got all kinds of stuff. G U M B I E Cat Networks comes from an old uh, T S Eliot poem. And we, I, I highly recommend, like, I'm on uh, Maji Day, which I do with uh, Mike Palace from Game, Game Kiwi, where we talk about uh, Japanese pop culture and media. I DM a podcast, a Dungeons & Dragons podcast uh, called Tragic Missile, which I, which if you, which you're referring to that, you should check out. I love our show, Ultimate Showdown. I, I, I dig um, the stuff that uh, Donna produces for us through uh, her Snarkcasts, um, like the Beyond the Cabin in the Woods and Once More with Feeling. Uh, I'm I really, I'm gonna talk to Vanessa about uh, expanding our base our uh, our producer base like getting more shows on the network but I don't know I don't know about the numbers I don't know about anything like that I feel like she may want to get some more sync set and stuff I haven't talked to her in forever too I showed her that um, Love Never Dies is coming to Cleveland uh, but then that's the last thing I really need to just sit down and and talk uh, turkey with her about the network 
if I, and, you know, because this is her network. She's the one who, you know, incorporated it and set up everything. So I want to talk with her about how I can help expand it and do better with it. Uh, but if you want to, you know, but other all our shows should be available through both Google Play and iTunes. So just look up, look us up through there. Leave a five star rating and review to let people know you like us. And if you want to follow, and if you want to share us through social media, uh, for this show, uh, go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. There you'll find all the big announcements, new episode releases, and uh, when I'm seeing new movies and whatnot. And uh, there you'll be able to share the episodes and what happens th- to the show through uh, through Facebook. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at cornjunkiepod. And there you'll find both the Facebook feed as well as the features uh Trailer Talk, where I talk about the trailers I see before a new release, and the Much Along segment, which I do as I watch a movie. It's a, like a, an ongoing commentary. I want to, once again, I want to, there's stuff I want to do for Patreon, but I need an audience base that has the disposable income to allow for that. So that's only, that's, that's a future John thing, not a current John thing. But I'll have these ideas in place for whoever wants them. Uh... But the, yeah, follow me on Pod. I'm most active on there. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, that's where a lot of the Facebook feed comes from now. Uh, it's Instagram. If you're on Instagram, look for Popcorn Junkie Podcast. It's mainly just tickets and pictures of the pot, of the logo for when I announce new episodes. Uh, I'll try to find more ways to incorporate the Instagram account and the stuff. But uh, for right now, that's what it is. Uh, you can also follow me on Stardust. I got, I, I actually got asked by the, uh, executive, not executives, but like the administrators and the tech and the people who in charge of Stardust to become a more premium member. Uh, so if you want to help me out with that, I posted, I'll reshare the link on Facebook, but basically just join the pop, join the app for free. It's all free and follow, follow my podcast, which is popcorn junkie. And you, that's all you got to do. And you don't. You can follow their other reviewers on there. Jeremy Johns is on there. The Schmoes are on there from Schmoes No. Doug is on there from Nostalgia Critic. And there's plenty of other new faces out there. If you love sharing your reactions to TV, movies, trailers, all of that, download the Stardust app and you can follow me at Popcorn Junkie. And you don't even have to use my invite link. Uh, you know, just check out the app for yourself. I loved it and I recommend it to anybody who's into that stuff. And also, don't forget to follow. Uh, we've up. I've upped the Twitch stream from 2 p.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern time. So noon Eastern time, I will be when I stream uh, on Twitch. That way, I get a chance to see um, releases that aren't. At, I can do a double feature if need be. I'll be done by six. Uh, this past weekend, we started. We got to the. We got to the big first twist in Doki Doki Literature Club. So it's going to be a crazy ride after this. And uh, we're almost done. We got to Victory Road in Pokemon Red. So the first adventure of the Pokemaniac is almost done. And we started a new trial of the Pokemaniac, of the Nuzlocke series. Uh, a crystal randomizer in honor of Pokemon Crystal being released on the 3DS Virtual Console. So I'm playing through Crystal with my starter, Machop. My Machop Randy Savage. Not, although it's just Savage, since uh, I didn't want to put Randy there, because I just wanted to make reference to Randy Savage. Anyway, my Machop, the Machop Man, running wild. I need to get more familiar with Randy Savage's phrases, because I know he doesn't do brother. That's a Hulk Hogan thing. I don't want to fall into that, though. 
uh, ooh, I just know that, oh yeah. So I do that when I use my Mock Chop Savage. <laughs> uh, so if you're enough join in the fun, not so much for Doki Doki Literature Club, but for everything else, follow me on twitch.tv slash popcornjunkiepwh, short for Popcorn Junkie Plays With Himself. And I'm hopefully, hopefully within the next couple of months, I'll be able to edit things down. Uh, and since this is a light weekend, I shouldn't have much to do. So I should be able to focus on actually editing the footage down into more digestible bites. But uh, I got all kinds of stuff to do. I need to edit for the actual podcast, uh, uh, for the other podcasts I'm planning on too. And I need to make sure, I need to have a bank ready for, of episodes ready for uh, Tragic Missile. So I don't have to keep editing week by week. I think that's a bad uh, method. Anyway, that's all uh, talking. That's all inside baseball stuff for the podcast. Uh, if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of messages you want me to relay, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. I'll either get back to you as soon as, as, soon as I find your message or I will relay your, your uh, message and answer your questions on the mic. And I think that about does it for this week. So I'm sorry I kept your time, but I, I this is a very passionate topic for me. So until next time, I'm John Bailey. And if there's one thing I regret about becoming a reviewer is acknowledging these awards. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. I can't zoom in on it. Why why won't you let me look at, at the thing? Google, you suck. <sighs> this is such BS. Why can't I just look at the damn review of the freaking movie? Why can't the why can't New Republic put their stuff in archives? <sighs> what if I Go to the Library of Congress. Don't worry, I'll cut all this out. This is this isn't important. Here, let me pause the recording. I spent too long trying to figure out where the heck the 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 context of that quote. But basically, I'm guessing that um, whoever wrote that review for the New Republic was basically saying. Um, no, this 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 whole thing is just you know the whole um, the the use the use of the imagery on film uh, as postcards, um, like the images that they're shown on film. Uh, I don't fucking. So uh, this is this is John Bailey. Uh, so I screwed up again. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it!